uh, Rupert was just uh, well. Sorry, this is the Kino Kingdom of Thirteen. I've just started recording, and Rupert was just pointing out that today, and I think today is it the seventeenth today. It is that they've just recorded the highest temperature ever recorded on Earth, and it's in the room I'm sat in now, <laughs> which <laughs> was surrounded by box Nintendo games. Um, oh, that's actually the in Death heat Valley. of the gold around you. Yes, Death Valley in California, apparently. So yeah. You'd be parched. You, you cl- would need some peach barley water. <laughs> I, I remember um, Robinson's fruit and barley. That kind of um, like like um, like oh, what's the sort of pink coloured squash? Is the is yeah. the one drink I always had when I when I worked in a hotel and I had constant daily hangovers. It was the one drink that I, every morning I would just be clocking back pints of it. Cause it was always on offer in the co-op over on Silly. And even now when I drink it, it just takes me back to like some of the most fierce, fierce hangovers I've ever had. It's, like a, it's not it's not a fun. It's a drink that it's a double-edged sword for me. Um, yes, it quenches my thirst, but it also gives me flashbacks to the worst times of my life. Yeah. It's like it's uh, like, yeah, you quen yeah, yes, it quenches my thirst. And yet is it worth it for the massive triggered PTSD? I'm not sure. <laughs> Oh god! I, I tell you what, some, some of those days working in that hotel in the hot kitchen, I'm not going to lie to you, but I, I wasn't going hundred percent. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't at my best. I used to get in the habit of drinking a full milkshake in the morning because I knew I would be sick, and at least it would be kind of. Um, it wouldn't. It would be like alkali. It wouldn't be acidic. When you're working around your vomit, you know you <laughs> think oh, I probably cars big export really that's literally what my wife did when she had morning sickness was that she would she knew she was going to spew so she decided to eat things that would taste nice on the way out <laughs> that's a good call actually yep it's hard to that she writes for cosmopolitan really i mean with tips <laughs> like that yeah she probably shouldn't have been drinking 12 pints in the evening really probably would have helped of battery acid <sighs> So that would be sharp. That you'd have, you'd have to you'd have to put a bit of black currant cordial with that to take the edge <laughs> off. Um, oh, by the way, before we, I know we're slightly off topic, but um, slightly um, on the subject of, of drinks, there was a period in the Welsh valleys where, like, a drink that people of a certain age would drink would be bow and o, so that's strong bow and orange squash. Ooh, and I, I had a sip of one once. It's absolutely foul. It's like it's curled in the glass. It's foul. I don't know. Not even orange juice, just orange yeah. squash. Wow. Yeah. So back on the cocktail. To... <laughs> That's a Welsh cocktail, a wocktail. So I've got quite a few films to go through. That I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Um, and they are Jordan Peele's Us, Come to Daddy, Awake, Closed Circuit, Loose, Escape Room, The Devil in the Woods, Hide and Seek, Under Suspicion, Deadfall, and The Witch in the Window. Right. Every time I say that, The Witch in the Window, I feel like my brain wants to say The Wind in the Willows, which is different. That's it's quite a cool frightening. title. The Witch in the Window. Yes. Yeah, because it, you know it's a horror. You know it's yes. going to be eerie. And you, yeah. Also, I like, it's just... I like, I like film titles, which for especially for horror movies, which are a little bit creepy and scary in themselves, like Don't Look Now or The Shining. They kind of, they sound creepy in themselves. Yeah, I like that. T- titles that make you you say, right. <laughs> well, you think, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, if there was a horror film just called The Exploding, you're like, all oh, right, okay, that's just going to be people blowing up. <laughs> so what have, what have you got on the um, on the menu for today then? Well, 
I'm sure we're going to mention Cyber Tracker at the start. Um, oh God, I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, I have also got Out of Sight, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Tron, Triple Frontier, Leprechaun, Twenty Twelve, Tomboy, Sightseers, The Prestige, and The Last Samurai. There's a few there that I'm, this is really good actually because there's a few there that are really making my trousers tighten that I've I've been on the cusp of watching so I'm uh, I'm intrigued. Shall we hurtle into Don the Dragon Wilson's 1995 classic Cyber Tracker? Yes, if we must. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a film made by we're becoming very familiar with. Is it PM Entertainment? It is PM Entertainment. Um, the the, uh, the successes of of Canon. Yeah. So yeah, this is uh, it. PM being Joseph Meary and Richard Pepin. This one's directed by Richard Pepin. It's called Cyber Tracker. Made in 1994. Oh, 94. Sorry, I Um Followed naturally by a director video sequel. Direct. Hang on. I just read that off Wikipedia. <laughs> director. Surely the first one was director video as well. I yeah, mean, that was not. That they didn't, didn't seem worth pointing out. Yeah, they didn't drive past cinemas to take that to Blockbuster. They only <laughs> back roads, no cinemas. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so uh, I don't know if you want to do this sort of a brief synopsis of, of what we what we sat through. So it's set in the future. I, I'm not sure we ever really worked out when we were trying well, to work it out. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to work it out from when the um, Declaration of Independence was signed, or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, in the in the film, uh, so. What's his name? Don the Dragon Wilson. He works as sort of this part of this Secret Service um, team who are protecting uh, this senator. And he is um, endorsing this. uh, This basically this computerized um, judicial system um, on behalf of a company a very OCP-like company called CyberCore. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's sort of like a RoboCop-type idea. Basically, they're trying to bring in this, like, automatic justice system type thing. Um, naturally, it's all a bit unethical and dodgy. Um, and he ends up falling in with this um, kind of uh, group who are opposed to this human rights group are opposed to this um, system being put in place. And he ends up fighting against the very people he once protected, the very corporate people. Um, Much like Dolph Lundgren in the film Men of War with Trevor Goddard. (laughs) Much like Robocop 3, in fact, as well. (laughs) With Robert John Burke. This this was amazing on, on a few levels, mainly because of Don the Dragon Wilson's clothes. There was one point where you pointed out he gets when he gets taken on the sort of side of the of the rebels, the human rights people, they give him clothes to wear because he's obviously been involved in a bomb blast and taken out one of these sort of very Terminator-esque robots that are becoming automated. And the clothes they give him, he just looks like an out-of-work painter and decorator. And Rupert rightly pointed out that his trousers were so wide. There was like zoot suit trousers. They were so mm. wide. And then, but they'd also been they'd been hemmed hemmed up, but on the inside, so there was no hem. So they they, they looked like they looked crap, like someone yeah. just bought cheap trousers and done. The there was no terrible. there was no sort of cuff at the bottom of the trousers. It was just obviously turned up, but underneath <laughs> it was 
<laughs> the fact that this is the main thing we're talking about in this film shows that it wasn't that interesting. I mean, it was just <laughs> very mediocre, really. Well, uh, the thing is, as we all know, we're on a hunt to find like a decent John the Dragon Wilson film, and this came close because. But we realised what it actually was was a kind of bog standard passable action film around Don the Dragon Wilson. He still yeah. wasn't good. He still no. wasn't good. He had no gravitas. Um, the, the use of kind of like the superimposed images and very early CG and reused footage and stuff is, is fine. Uh, right. You know, when it cuts to the kind of Terminator vision, they directly reference the T-1000 in one scene, which was a bit of a bit of a mistake. Um, and the, the kind of, again, the, the, the martial arts combat isn't really there, although Richard Norton is in it. Yes. Uh, who usually depend on these sorts of films but again it, there's something about the fight choreography it was okay but the big fight at the end between them they, it, it was like so brief and mm-hmm. something weird happened something weird happened in that fight as well i can't remember what it was now but it was just it just kind of ended yes uh, the fight just kind of it all sort of warmed up and then oh, oh that's it then it was an odd one that final fight wasn't it because it was very built up and then they do some pretty cool moves at the start but then they have this weird thing where they they both get really tired and it's almost like they ran out of ideas for the choreography and that they end up just like taking, they shots. take it in turns to swing a fist at each other. And that's it. Almost like they're going to be so exhausted that, you know, they can barely fight anymore. But it's not much fun for us, is it? I mean, we don't really, in a film like this, we don't really think about whether people get exhausted or not. We just want them to keep fighting and do cool things. But it was yeah. it was very strange. Yeah, so it was a little bit unsatisfying all round, really. And of course, the fact that it's so heavily borrowed from the likes of Robocop and the Terminator, as you say, directly referencing the Terminator, <laughs> it's always a bad idea to directly reference infinitely yeah. better films. Which is something we'll be talking about when we w- want to talk about Escape Room later on, actually, which features right. Sean Young. Sean Young Blimey. and Skeet. Ulrich um but yeah it was um the the biggest most fun we had I think with Cybertracker was the fact that we worked out his wife supposedly died in like 2014 this film was made in 94 he watches this ridiculous like scene where he gets really maudlin while he's drunk and watches old footage of his wife from CCTV in his home but it's really low quality but he's got like it's like a a sort of um uh what's the word like a voice commanded computer that he gets drunk it's like digitally drunk and then kind of just heals a booster like, okay it's not what i would do with a voice activated computer but um yeah, just become an abusive husband and everything everything in his house is peach or salmon colored like when it goes into his flashback so like, bloody hell his clothes everything his clothes matches curtains matches cupboards matches ceilings everything is peach or salmon um <laughs> And also the constant use of like really outmoded '90s technology. The amount of times in that film that someone is on is looking at a TV or a voice call, and it's five or six inches big on a table twenty-five feet away from them. They would be squinting. It's it's the best part of the film. It's, it's always it's the like best so- part of these films is seeing how they imagine that future tech will look like, and it's just it hasn't advanced in twenty-five years. It's just no, there's, preposterous. There's a bit where they've got these like voice-activated computers and stuff, and these like future cars, which are just Saabs with tinted windows. And then he goes into like the, the rebel base, and one of the guys has got an actual five and three-quarter inch floppy disk on his table. Yeah, like that—that that would have been out of date in 1994 when the film was made, and this is a quarter of a century on. 
<laughs> at least be a, it'd at least be a ferric tape. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, so, my favourite scene I think was the bit where he's in the police station, and uh, the company is obviously like putting out a propaganda campaign against him, like framing him for some sort of murder or whatever, and his image comes up on all these like TV screens around the place. And it's clearly him. And he's just standing there surrounded by police officers everywhere. And it's a really long protracted scene, which must go on for like two minutes. Of yeah. Obviously his face on the screen, obviously people recognize him. And obviously the fact that he's standing there and it just goes on and on. He's just standing there thinking, well, oh, can I get away with this? And it's like, no, yeah. you can't. It's you're in a police station. You're in a police station as yeah, on all these huge screens that are up at weird heights and angles for everyone to look at. Yeah. And they stop their conversations. They look at the screen. They look at him. And he systematically looks at every group of police from this police station. It flicks back and forth. And then he just walks out. And then everyone looks at each other and then runs after him. Yeah. <laughs> like, hang on. Did I just see what I thought I saw? It's like, yes, you did. Right, let's let's move on for Cybertrack because it's not it's not worth our time. It's it's a very very mediocre film. Yeah, but unfortunately, it's the best one we've seen of his so far. Sadly, yes. Okay, do you want to begin with one of yours? Because I think you've got if you've got eleven, I've got ten. Then yeah, if you start, then that would make sense. I think this is the first time I've beaten you in my film watching. Um, so um, you lose it. So I watched Jordan Peele's Us um, this Lovely. week. Uh, on now now tv my trial has ended so don't expect any more from that <laughs> <laughs> everything from now on is going to be made before 2005 <laughs> um, and be a tv series so um yeah i watched and, and i did, i did like this film i was a big fan of get out um and i found this film like much more fun and uh, like lighter in tone which i wasn't really expecting um so uh, for people who don't know uh, about this film it's sort of um I, it's, it's not. It's, it's his second full-length film, I think, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, um, and it's about uh, a family who who sort of uh, go away to a, a beach, a beach home they've got, and they get attacked by what appears to be sort of doppelgangers of themselves. And I won't give away too much of the story because the fun of it is to kind of seeing where it goes. But I found this quite funny, and my God. I've had I've got I've I got five on it in my head for a week. The song, what an amazing hip hop song! It's I must so have listened to about fifteen. It's such a good song. Um, so <clears throat> it's yeah, I really liked it. It's like I said, it's a bit lighter in tone. I found the, I found it quite funny, quite darkly funny. Um, but I think it's one of those films that, whilst it's obviously really well made and a really interesting concept. Whereas with when I watched Get Out, I had a lot of interesting conversations with friends about what what was sort of addressed in the film. Yep. With this, it felt much more. It felt very much aimed at an American audience, and it also felt. Um, it was one of those films that when it finished, and I th I thought about it, I, I I had issues with how it went through its narrative. Right. Um. It was a lot of. It's hard to talk about it without giving it away, but. Mm when it sort of explains what's happening in the film and the, and, the, and the machinations and some of the motivations of the characters in it, when you actually stop to think about how that would all work, you, mm. it, it really falls apart very, very quickly. It, but when you're watching the film, it's fine because it's so well done that it just keeps you enthralled. But when okay. you think about it after, it's yeah. very, actually quite ridiculous. Well, that is the key, isn't it? To keep you enthralled while it's on. I'm not so bothered if a film falls apart afterwards, but as long as it's not falling apart before your eyes, I think that's the key. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So and, and I, I, really... I know what you mean. It's very difficult to talk about us without giving anything away because I remember there being a point in that film where I was thinking this is where a regular film would meet its conclusion. You see what I mean? And then, uh, so it was really exciting, the fact that it was only like 45 minutes an hour in. And I was thinking, well, where can it go from here? And I like the fact that it just goes into some very weird places. I know what you mean, though. It's yeah. not quite as, um, you can't quite pluck it out of the root in the way, like Get Out, it's it's like it's very nakedly a kind of, um, a kind of socially conscious film uh, and a political film in some ways. And it's very obviously about race relations, etc. It's not as clear what us is really about as such in the same way. So there aren't so many of those sorts of conversations you can have afterwards. The conversations you have afterwards are more like, what did I just watch? <laughs> Something. <laughs> yeah. It was very much, whereas I think um, when I watched Get Out, it was, I was completely swept along by it and thought uh, that it was really interesting and, and like a really heavy duty, interesting film with us. I was. It was very much about little set pieces and little scenes that happened. Yeah. Um, but I did enjoy it. But if I had to rank them, I would say that I, I did prefer Get Out. Maybe, yeah. maybe though, I enjoyed it so much. My expectations were quite high for this. Um, Possibly. But... And also, perhaps the fact us is such a, a strange and elusive kind of story, and with its themes and stuff. I wonder if perhaps it's going to take a while to. Uh, one or a few more viewings perhaps to really yeah, kind of yeah. comprehend it in a way uh, which is fine as well yeah yeah but, yeah yeah but it's it's very good and um very you are, I, think, I think it would benefit from a rewatch where you where you're not kind of thinking right i'm just trying to keep up with this and see where this is going when you're fully aware of how it all pans out just thinking right now i can enjoy now yes. i can look into this a bit more and, and see certain things and perhaps <laughs> but, yeah, without the baggage of get out as well going into this expecting something similar which it really isn't no not at all uh but yeah like i said very darkly funny and i got five on it by the loonies oh my god what a song what a song <laughs> brilliant i was <laughs> i went through a bit of a thing after it of listening to um some 90s hip-hop which isn't something i normally listen to but i was listening to a few bits and pieces but i was like a madman just scrolling through spotify these are nothing these are nothing compared to i got five on it um <laughs> scattering the cds around my desk uh so yeah i'm just gonna stick with that one song quite <laughs> okay that's gonna be your entire <laughs> hip-hop experience just that one song <laughs> just that and big willy style on cd from 1997 that's fine. <laughs> yeah uh a cd single <laughs> three tracks two of them radio edits of the original yeah. track <laughs> well you. one of them a radio edit and one of them a, a terrible euro dance remix of a hip-hop tune <laughs> where, where they've just sped up they've just sped up the the lyrics the the vocals and they just and they it just sounds slightly higher faster version of the original vocal and they've got like a drum behind everything <clears throat> yeah that's really that would really ruin getting jiggy with it if that happened oh, i yeah. wouldn't oh yeah so yep that's us that is us um so and that was on um now tv wasn't it now TV, <clears throat> yes. okay um well i will talk about out of sight and this is on netflix currently and this is the story of gentle bank robber 
played by George Clooney, who escapes from prison and then he plans to steal uncut diamonds from this old white-collar convict who he met in there. Um, during the escape from prison, he has this encounter with a U.S. Marshal played by Jennifer Lopez, and the two have an instant rapport. Um, and they basically then on, they both become infatuated with crossing paths, even though they're like, he's quite clearly should be like just getting out of there, doing the job and getting out of there. He's kind of obsessed with um, meeting her again. And she is kind of obsessed ostensibly with catching him, but really they just fancy each other a lot. So yeah, there's, um, and so it's, it's quite a cool, sexy duo at the, uh, leading it and then there's um supporting roles for Bing Rames, Steve Zahn, um Dennis Farina obviously. Good. Uh, Don Cheadle who's hilarious. And yeah, so this is Steven Soderbergh and he I remember when he he made Sex Lies and Videotape. I noticed that you didn't mention Michael Keaton then. I did mention Michael Keaton actually. He does rock up in one scene or maybe maybe two scenes. As, especially uh, Rain Nicolette. Yeah. Does he play the same role in, I want to say, Jackie Brown? I think this is why I happen to remember his name, because I must have seen Out of Sight when it came out and not since. Yes. So I don't know why I remember his name, and it must be because of that bit of trivia. Yes, I'm pretty sure it is the same character. But yeah, and yeah, he's very cool and, and very funny, because he's not a complete dick, but he's just a kind of... He's, he's a dick bubbling below the surface. But yeah, um, so yes, yeah, Steven Soderbergh anyway. So he made Sex, Lies and Videotape in 1989. Um, but then to be honest, if you look at his filmography from most of the 90s, I mean, most of the films aren't really remembered. Uh, and then and then I, I remember I was going, I went to the cinema in, in 1998 when this was made and I was not going to see this film. And it, I don't know, I look back and I try to work out what it was that I really wanted to see. So, but it was sold out and I really can't see what it could have been when you could look at the other films around at that time, possibly the Truman Show, not sure anyway. But so I just decided to randomly see uh, Out of Sight and it was a really, really pleasant surprise. And I remember being just really seduced by the fact that the two main actors are so gorgeous and and they had genuine chemistry i love the cinematography the editing and david holmes music which is just really cool um really really nice loungy trip hop type stuff um good and it, yeah it's nice to watch it after 20 odd years and actually sort of be seduced all over again so um yeah so it's clooney and lopez are kind <clears throat> of the the key because they're kind of selling this idea that these two people could genuinely uh, be in love based on a single kind of uh, encounter. Yeah. yeah. And and you believe it in large part because they're both so hot, but, but also because, um, but also because it, it's, it's really hard, right. To write convincing dialogue for two people meeting and just getting along. Right. Um, so a lot of romance films, they will tend to, they'll they'll take the shortcut of like they'll turn, they'll make love into some kind of mystical supernatural force, like they're meant to be together, um, or they'll have, um, or they'll have like an extreme situation that these two people go through, um, you know, which is a threat to both their lives, and then afterwards they just like 
destined to be together in that way. But it's quite rare to see people presented in a way where they meet each other, get along really well um, and really fancy each other and then continue to get along. And that's why the romance is quite convincing, because that's how real life romance really works. People meet, get along, want to have sex with each other and continue to get along. So anyway, um, yeah, so it it kind of goes back to the the old, I guess, the screwball romance type things of the 30s and 40s, where you, um, you put two people together into a kind of quite combative dialogue. And in this case, it's literally combative because, of course, they're, one's a cop and one's a robber. So it does work really well. Um, and and what's good as well is that I know we talked about Steven Soderbergh work on um, Oceans films before. And the thing that put me off, you, something you mentioned about the Oceans films is that they are really cool and seductive, yes, but there's very little peril involved in yeah. them. Um, and what I like about Out of Sight, which I think I would probably disappoint me about the Oceans films, is that it does actually have some element of peril to it. Um, is so, it still quite a light-hearted... I remember it being quite a light-hearted film, because it's like a 12 rating or something, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes, I think it gets the balance about right, because it, it, he doesn't have exactly have the roughest time in prison, but I mean, there, harsh stuff does happen in the prison, and most of it's related to stuff involving John Don Cheadle, who's so funny in it, because he's obviously a real proper gangster type, a real gangbanger, and he's like, you know, he's got the bandana and stuff like that. And yet, and the way he talks is like gangster language, and yet he's clearly he's clearly much more intelligent than he gives himself credit for. And, he, and he's just, he's so fast talking, and he's so kind of um, erudite. It's, it's really funny to watch him talk in that way, but in such intelligent terms. Um, and yeah, the dialogue is just really smart and very swift and it, it it's a very simple plot really but it's it's very much layered in tiny complications which make it more interesting and yeah as i said the the music's really cool it's just a really really well put together film and it still holds up it, it doesn't feel in some you know you get many films in the mid to late 90s which uh, were trying desperately hard to be cool in a very Tarantino type way and I, it doesn't really try and do that it's much more earnest than Tarantino and it doesn't feel like it's trying too hard to be cool it feels effortless put it that way so yeah that that's, a, that's that's a problem that was one of the problems I had with um seven psychopaths I, I watched yeah. it twice and both times I just thought stop trying to be cool I mm. felt like everyone in that film just had their tongue in their cheek and sort of trying to be quirky and I, th- I wouldn't mind actually watching the film and not being distracted by this yes. i also look at you with a big empty with simon Pegg and um what's his name david schwimmer from the late 90s not really simon Pegg's american accent in that film whoops <laughs> <laughs> um <clears throat> i'm not gonna say anything else <laughs> was it as good as his scottish accent in star trek that's the question I've never seen Star Trek. Actually, that's weird. I haven't seen Star Trek because I fancy Carl Urban. Yeah. So yeah, it's quite funny in it as well, Carl. Apparently, as well, the game on the PS3 is supposed to be pretty good. Um, yeah. So yeah, really, I should just be a massive Trekkie fan by now. <laughs> <Yeah>, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was oh, out of cool. sight, and that's on Netflix. 
Um, I did. I think I've already just. Usually, I go through these episodes and sort of write down choice parts of dialogue to use as a kind of non sequitur subtitle for the episode. But I think I've already decided on a dick bubbling below the surface because the image that conjures up is foul. <laughs> so I'm going to use that. Um, I've written it down. To, it's true. Everything I write down is real now. So much, much like the story of Cellar Dweller. So the next one I watched is Come to Daddy with Elijah Wood and Stephen McHattie, who I recognize instantly upon looking at, but I could not place him in any film. Does it name ring a bell to you? No, although... Type I in can... Stephen McHattie. Have... Stephen McHattie. Okay. Yeah. Let's have a look. I, I, I literally, I thought, oh, I know you. And then I was trying to place him for ages. He kind of looks like a cross between like Scott Glenn and Lance Henriksen in this film. And then right. you skinny it. Oh, skinny this guy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I could not place him in a single film, but I recognize him the second I saw him. So, him. so yeah, come, come to Daddy is a, is a film where Elijah Wood, well, everything Elijah Wood is amazing in this film. His personality, his hair, his clothes, his clothes are especially magnificent, and it's kind of part <laughs> of the plot as well. So the story is that Elijah Wood's got an estranged father. Um, and he turns up at this really remote beach house uh, and to sort of reconnect with him because he's got this letter saying, I, I really want I really want you to come and meet me. We've got a lot to talk about. And when he turns up, his father's instant, obviously like a borderline alcoholic and is really combative and is really reticent to sort of tell him why he's there. Uh, and this, the film is it's a bit of a kind of mystery thriller and it, and it goes off from that. But it's, it's also got like a really dark comedy heart and... Mm. I've noticed that Elijah Wood. I don't know if he's. I don't know if it's his production company that he has cast himself in, but he's in a lot of these really quirky, funny, dark films. Yes. That that I quite like because they're always ninety minutes. They've always got like an interesting little premise, and he always plays a similar character where he's kind of out of his depth and just like wide-eyed and not sure how to deal with everything. So that's that's funny. Um, but yeah, I I did like this film. A few other people turn up. Michael Smiley turns up in it, who um will always own my heart for his. Uh, part in kill list obviously yes um and yeah it's just it's just him sort of with his father trying to reconnect but also trying to work out what's going on and then obviously events kind of spiral out of control um and and the film goes on from there but it's just one of those films is sort of hard to talk about really without giving anything away because i think a lot of these mid-budget or low-budget independent thrillers a lot of the fun comes from just seeing where they go yeah so but it's it's really it's really pretty. The whole thing is the beach house he lives on. I was actually a bit jealous of, because he's he's got this um, like a veranda overlooking the ocean. It's surrounded by rocks and beach, and it's really isolated. And I thought, oh, that's actually really really nice. That's a really cool place. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a, a fun, brief, dark thriller about um, with some really funny comedic moments, especially the monologue. And a very, a very extreme circumstances that Michael Smiley gives at the end of the film is one of the funniest things I've ever seen or hmm. heard. Um, so definitely worth a goosey. Is Michael definitely Smiley worth... speaking his native Northern Irish? He, his accent is thicker than me. Honestly, it, it's, I was when sometimes he was talking. I, I was having to kind of work out what he was saying. Good because it's yeah. it's actual accent. Yes, um, and I, it makes the yeah. delivery even funnier at the end. I know what you mean about like not wanting to give anything away in these sorts of smaller uh, like horrors and thrillers and stuff, because it's almost like they have um, 
they have the narrative freedom because of the size of their budget and stuff to do something unusual or surprising with the way the story goes and yeah. and that's quite exciting really when you get a well-made smaller movie with good exactly. actors in like yeah. named actors who have a career yes. and i think it's almost like sometimes like you say they're working with these like really small budgets they've got this neat little funky script and sometimes the the kind of lunacy or, or the the mystery of where the film goes it is sort of the only trick up the sleeve and it just seems a shame to just give that away and say oh yeah. this is what happens it's good you should watch it because i don't know it just seems a shame um stephen mchattie i know yes. him from pontypool I think that's the main one that I know him from. Um, Which is in Canada, not in Wales. The, the... Yes. Um, and also, I, I realised that he's also in 2012, which I was going to talk about in a bit anyway. So I can't actually remember him in that film. But there you go. But no, if, if you like tense sort of mm. mystery thrillers, definitely give it a goosey. I had a really good really good time with it. And that was, yes, on now TV. So I will never be able to watch it again because of my trial. <laughs> it will never come to any other service. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so that's Come to Daddy. When you said Come to Daddy, I just thought of Aphex Twin. I just remember that horrible music video for Aphex Twin. <laughs> yeah, it was Watch foul. it if you haven't seen it. Grim. <laughs> I'm not sure I could handle 90 minutes of that, to be honest. But yeah, okay, good. <laughs> um, so next, I have Pee-wee's Big Adventure. So uh, I, don't you... norm- I don't normally say this, but why did you watch this film? Uh, because it was available on Netflix and I haven't seen it in many, many years. It was, I don't know whether it was Tim Burton's first Hollywood film, but it was. Oh, really? I I just assumed because Pee Wee -wee Herman, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. I just thought this was just kind of like an American, American TV series that was made into a film. So I assumed it would just be crap. Well, it kind of was. <laughs> yeah, it was that. I, I'm not sure what the Pee Wee um, TV show was like. Um, uh, but yes, it is. If It's almost like, right, okay, Tim Burton made Edward, and that was his sort of love letter to 40s and 50s genre cinema, I guess. Um, uh, in some ways, this is he, this is Tim Burton almost harking back to the silent era tradition because the the opening sequence in, in particular, the first 10 minutes or so, is just Pee-wee interacting with his world uh, and overacting and overreacting. And, um, and like, it has all these little quirks, like when Pee-wee raps on someone's front door, um, the music will play along with the rapping on the door sort of thing. It's very, very much like in the silent movie tradition. It, it sounds a bit Mr. Beanie as well. Yeah, it's somewhere between Mr. Bean and Jim Carrey, I suppose. Because uh, it is, it's a unique physical performance and it is something that Jim, I guess Jim Carrey would continue this kind of physical comedy tradition a few years later, I suppose. Uh, and it, I don't think it's really, a, it's not a very popular style of comic acting today, I wouldn't say. And if anything, I'd say that modern comedy would tend towards um, more verbal and facial humor really it's not such a popular thing anymore but anyway so this is it's basically a road movie uh, you can tell it's taken from a tv series because the plot is extremely thin peewee's peewee's special bike bicycle is stole has been stolen and this psychic tells him it's in the alamo she's just making it up as she goes along 
And she says, in the They all do Rupert, spoiler alert, they all do that. It is quite a funny scene, actually, because she's literally, like, he's just paid her a load of money, and she's literally just looking across the street at, like, street signs and stuff, and just coming up and, like, taking words from them and just saying, uh, he's he's in the Alamo. And it's like, and then he instantly decides he has to travel all the way to Texas. But, of course, (laughs) he's got no way of getting there, so he has to hitchhike. And it's basically all about the weird people he meets along the way. So Pee Wee Herman, if you're not familiar with the character, um, he is, uh, he's played by Paul Rubens and he is, um, Pee Wee's just a big kid, basically. And his main nemesis is also a big kid, really. It's played by Mark Holton, who's in the Leprechaun films, which I'll mention later. And nice. so you've got this big, Pee Wee's a big kid, but he's, he's very innocent. And he's very, very positive about the world, everything. And the guy who steals his bike is just a kid, but he's a bully, really. Um, so that's the kind of dynamic you got in the middle of it all. Um, yeah, so as I said, it's like, it's really about the kind of weird people he sees along the way. Um, it's, and there's, like, they're not really particularly connected or anything. It's just, he will he will kind of uh, learn something from each of them, or they will learn something from him. And I guess the key theme I never saw when I was a child watching this was that it's all about existential loneliness, really, because Pee Wee is oh. basically opted out of society at the start because he keeps going about how he's a loner or a rebel. He's kind of quoting like an old Western or something like that. And in, in his journey is essentially he's discovering that everyone else, uh, a kind of micro level is a loner and a freak in their own way. So in actually he does fit in because if we're all loner rebel weirdos then he has a place in society this seems um, like a film with a decent heart from what you're saying well it is very big hearted and that's what's quite appealing about peewee himself is that it is a bit weird watching him just act like a child all the time but at the same time he is um <laughs> he's a very sweet natured so you can't really argue with it he's not calculating in the same way that like say one of jim carrey's characters might be for example he's just really naive um there isn't really much of the kind of gothic type stuff that we you'd expect from tim burton i mean he went on to do what beetlejuice would be after this i suppose and then batman of course but um although there is one extremely strange dream sequence involving like clowns and twisted corridors and someone dressed as satan and stuff so that's cool and and it, it it's good because the film ends up with this very kind of enjoyable slow slow moving chase sequence around around the Warner Brothers studios where he's on his bike again chased by by people and he's just crashing different movie sets like Godzilla westerns musicals stuff like that and also what I noticed this time around is there's only actually one child in the entire film one actual child in the entire film and he's a total dick. So it's an odd one because, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a kid's film. But but that's the entire representation of children in a microcosm. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yes. And going back to kind of what you're saying about the positivity of it, it, unlike, say, something like Return to Oz, which we talked about before, where it's like just a full on horror movie, basically, none of the creepier content here would really upset kids. I mean, there's one pretty scary moment with this woman called large marge with some cool maker um cool like um stop motion monster effects um but other than that it's pretty gentle really um and it's just yeah it's all done with 
enormous kind of positivity and enthusiasm and so it's a hard film to hate although i'm not really sure what young people would make of it today to be honest so um but yeah does it embrace, does it embrace the fact that it was made in the 80s um it's kind of out it's it's a bit of a film out of time really because it's it's he goes to such odd little backwards type places it's not really clear and, and the, <laughs> it's not evident any of the music or anything like that because the 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 score is by Danny Elfman and it's very kind of whimsical score and yeah and any music that he listens to is tends to be older it's almost in you know his his bicycle is almost looks like something from the 50s so it's 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 almost like a nostalgia for uh, a kind of subjectively more innocent time um, quick question so, as well you said he, he stole his magic bicycle what what's magic about it not magic just special oh right sorry yeah. there's nothing actually magical about it at all no it's just a nice bike and that's oh, it and it's almost like he's so positive and nice to people and means so little harm that when this bike gets stolen it almost like breaks something in his mind um because it's like how can anyone be so cruel to them but yeah um yeah so i think it it holds up whether it would be of that much interest to someone coming to it anew i'm not so sure but if if just it's if anything it's just worth watching from the perspective of it being tim burton and in a period when he was still making interesting films hashtag sick burn um <laughs> The 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 next film I've got is a film um, from a few years ago called Awake, starring Jonathan Rhys Meyers, and uh, I think his name's Francesca Clint, uh, Eastwood. It's Clint Eastwood's daughter. I didn't realise this until after I watched the film. And this is not a good film. This this okay. does the thing. Whenever I ch- one of my favourite genres of films are thrillers, like sort of uh, thrillers where you think oh, there's a this kind of high concept, something happens, and, and you just sort of go with it. And sometimes, sometimes, Rupert, just sometimes, these films are crap. And mm. this is one of them. So it's Jonathan Rhys Myers, who I've got a. Uh, the last film I, I reviewed on this podcast with Jonathan Rhys Myers in was Black Butterfly with um, uh, Antonio Banderas. Yes. And he, he was not very good in that. And I remember him being in uh, From Paris with Love, which is a film I really dislike. And I found him quite bland in that. And I've come to the conclusion I just don't think he's got much screen presence. And he's also got really, in all of his films, he's got really dirty, bitten nails. Um, and it's just <laughs> unpleasant. It's like constant zooming in his hand. And you're like, just stop nails. Just clean them. Or at least give them a scrap before you start filming. Um, he was in a good so film in- called Velvet Goldmine. But, again, he was surrounded by so much talent that I wonder if it was just a bad actor in a good film. <sighs> I am not usually a negative Nancy, <laughs> but in this case, I, I don't want to be a cynic. <laughs> um, so that's a Giorgio Tomo film, isn't it, from the mid nineties? No, oh, that's, that's, that's that's Mimic. Uh, Hang on, was it even a Giorgio Toro film? Was it? <laughs> it was, yeah. Giorgio Toro. Oh, it was. He did it. I think he did it after Kronos, um, and I think it was like his Hollywood calling card type gig. And right. he massively regrets, like most things that happened on that film. I think. Um, is that I noticed that Mira Sovino's in that film. Does she walk around tapping people on the shoulder, saying, "I don't really fancy Robin Williams in Final Cut"? 
that wasn't real. There's a massive age difference. They didn't address that. They should have done, frankly. It's part so of the in a way, in, in a wake, um, it, the film starts off with Jonathan Rhys Myers driving high speed down a rural American dusty road, love film set, anywhere dusty. And he crashes the car and wakes up and he's in a sort of comes out of a coma and he's covered in bandages and he has absolutely no memory of, of what was happening when he crashed. Unfortunately for him, there have been five murders of, of women getting attacked and killed. And in his car, one of them was found dead in his trunk. So he, he does look a little bit guilty. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> um, and so you would think, oh, this is going to be a high tension film if him going to people, getting snippets of information and wondering, you know, is he guilty? Is he not? But no, what it actually boils down to is him driving slowly around with uh, the nurse played by um, Clint Eastwood's daughter, just being oddly hostile to everyone and making no progress in, mm. in really. And his memory just comes back to him and then it's just solved at the end. So it's a, it's a tedious print. William Forsyth is in this film as well. <laughs> and he, he has put on weight and he has dyed his hair and he <laughs> has dyed his mustache to match. Um, so there was a lot going on. I do love William Forsyth's voice, though. And when he's in in these sort of thrillers, you always just think, are you guilty? Because you're always a deeply yeah. unblessed man. So that was cool. But the, the problem is with this film is just how boring the middle section is. It's the premise mm. to start five, ten minutes. You think, oh, this is interesting. You know, what's going to happen here? But then it, it is literally about 50 minutes of him just driving around and people saying, oh, have you got your memory yet? And him just saying, no. no. And then... And then looking at wind chimes on someone's porch, and and having like a really brief vision of something, and then thinking, I, I don't I don't know what that means. I got no, I got no context for that. And then going back, just hanging around, being bored, like I was watching the film. And, <laughs> and then when the film does at the end, when it sort of reveals its cards to the viewer, I thought, no, 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 because in, like you say, instantly there are massive plot holes in the reveal. Yes. That. Uh, that as as they were coming out of characters' mouths, I thought, no, I'm no, I'm sorry, I don't accept uh, this. Yeah, uh, this illuminates the problem we were talking about earlier that it falls apart before your eyes rather than yeah. after you've seen it. Yeah, problem. Yes, definitely it, a problem. It's very rare for a film to completely pull the rug from under a viewer's feet totally and completely blindside them, which is amazing. It can mm -hmm. be an amazing feeling. Like, oh, okay, this is cool. But when it doesn't wrap up. It's instantly got problems. And in this, it's got fundamental problems. That When the reveal happened, I instantly, in my mind, went back to the start of the film and just thought, no, then this whole film is, this whole boring film is just based on something that isn't even held together in the film's own internal logic. So Ooh, it, it's really one to avoid. It is a boring um, thriller. Sounds like you had trouble staying awake during this one. I'll edit that out. So what film have you watched now? <laughs> um, so what was that? Uh, was it called Awake, right? It was, it called, was Awake. called Awake. I, I can that, imagine. That's, Do you know that what? sounds like it's got an alternative title somewhere. You know <laughs> I just going to say you know that's got about three or four titles. Yeah. They've tried out films. a three or four when it's been re-released. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just, it's, just bad. it's just a bad film. Okay. Whatever title, changing the title would not help. No, it, it changes the title, doesn't change the content. That's what I say. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's move on then from Jonathan Rhys Myers.
<laughs> um, I've got to say, right, that film was so boring that I almost just thought, I don't think I want to watch a film with you in it again because wow. I, I, I said a few times on this podcast. I think for me, the worst crime a film can commit is to to bore me because that is not what I want. Um, so yeah, I just think I just he's got no gravitas. It's like Jeremy Renner. Mm. So yeah, it's it's almost it's like it's the C. Thomas Howell effect, isn't it? You know, however good a film might look, as soon as you see his name, you just think it's going to be worse because you're in it. Yeah. Yeah, and let's face it, none of his films look good anyway. So, mm. except the Hitch. So. <laughs> um, let's talk about Tron then. Okay. This is on Disney Plus. This is the, the remake original. or the original? This is the original. No. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> the the plot, uh, if you can fathom it. Uh, so in the real world, um, uh, this guy called Flynn. Um, his uh, played by Jeff Bridges. His game programs have been stolen by uh, a guy, another programmer called Dillinger, played by David Warner, obviously, who used uh, he used those ideas um, uh, to basically bolster himself. And he becomes CEO of this company called Encom. Um, now the evidence of this theft is deep in the computer network. So Flynn dives into the computer uh computer the mainframe um as the avatar clue um in order to hack the system he has to overcome this thing called the master control program which is a basically a sentient ai which is running the place um so flynn uh, or as he's known clue is helped by um his friends uh, a lady called yori and another guy called tron and they're basically avatars of his real world friends, sort of thing. So played by who? Sorry, uh, I've never seen Tron, so I'm completely. Uh... I'm not sure about the woman. The, the Tron is played by, I want to say Bill Boxleitner. I think it's something like that. He does return in Tron Legacy. I'll have to check. I'll have to check the pronunciation. But um, and yeah, so basically they're trying to. Uh, he and Tron represents this kind of security device, which is um, is the key to unlocking the truth about this corporate theft in the real world. So in the in the kind of avatar world, it's a very stylized world and um, of like uh, computer graphics and stuff, very, very stylized computer graphics. And they use obviously very early computer graphics as well, because it's 1982. They use um, and they kind of use these laser disc things to throw each other. They have these light cycle chases and they're attacked by these polygonal um, uh, kind of uh, attack robots called recognizers and classic kind of wireframe tanks and stuff. So it's so basically you've got kind of two two parts of the film. You've got you got the real world stuff, which is maybe a quarter of the film, and that's really about the kind of I guess it's reflecting the kind of IP battles that you would have seen in the early console wars. Um, mm -hmm. But then in the actual in the uh, kind of virtual world, um, it's more about this master control program, program, which is like this insane authoritarian creature and he's he's on a mission to suppress any talk um amongst the avatar population of these mythological almost religious um 
uh, entities called users. And of course, the users are players in the real world. So it's quite a cool idea that the avatars in this in this virtual world, uh, their kind of thoughts are suppressed of these um, existence, these possible like players outside the world. So anyway, so he's like a crazy communist tyrant policing any kind of imaginative thought. But um, I just think, I think it's amazing, this film, not necessarily because it's an amazing film. I just think it's amazing that this was made in 1982, right? But yeah. apparently Steven Lisberger, who came up with the idea, he he thought of this in 1976, right? He, <laughs> he saw the game Pong, right? And he started coming up with this idea. So he's... Here's someone who's seen the game Pong, and we know how basic that is, right? And then he's then taken that seed of an idea and envisaged what is effectively a massive avatar-driven MMO, really. And I, I, it's really hard to overstate how far ahead of its time that really is, because it's not just about, oh, yeah, you know, like early, cool, early kind of CG. I mean, the idea of this, like an, a kind of massively multiplayer thing, which is all connected, is just incredible to me. But, you know, even and even James Cameron hadn't made the Terminator, which was obviously about rampant AI and, and stuff. So um, and of course, uh, Cameron made something similar in Avatar, like however, what was that, 30 years later, almost? Mm. Um which is for those similar. people who listening to this who aren't familiar with video games uh, pong is such a basic video game you can actually run it on a voodoo 3 graphics card on a <laughs> pentium 2 <laughs> possibly you only you only need four megabytes of ram i think yeah and if you press minus you can just get the screen down to postage stamp size to get it, the frame rate up a bit as well yeah, it's fine get it up to 60 yeah <laughs> um so Right. So most of the cyber stuff is kind of green screen, I guess. And it's a weird con a combination of special effects in this movie because most of the cyber stuff is like green screen. But the costumes are mostly rotoscoped, right? And we, you know what rotoscoping is? It's where they go through every single frame and draw over um, the image. And of course, and, and then you've got the backgrounds, uh, they're kind of animated paintings i guess like matte paintings but mixed with cgi so the art design is so stylized in this movie it doesn't look dated in the way that other sci-fi films of the period definitely are um and it's interesting that the the techniques like used in the film especially the rotoscoping and that they were so kind of grueling and time consuming it's the only film which ever used them so which is why tron looks so unique today there's nothing else, literally nothing else like it, because they, they just thought it's just not worth it. Um, <laughs> I'd say the film's flaws are mostly in its storytelling. It's 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 strange how much it stumbles in just telling a pretty straightforward story. Um, and, you know, that's coming from a time now when the idea of avatars and online worlds are quite commonplace. I God knows what kids would have made of it at the time, trying to get their head around this idea of like two parallel universes and stuff. Um, is, is, it's it not is it aimed at children then, the film? I think it's one of those films where it is the kind of thing that perhaps slightly older children would have had back then. For children today, I think, I think it would be a little bit too cerebral and perhaps a little bit too slow. But... Um, but yeah, it's still just inherently a little bit confusing. And it's not helped, of course, by the fact that every every character has two identities and two names. So because they're throwing these names around and you're like, <laughs> yeah. wait, which one's there? And, Sounds uh, like a thing. 
yes. Um, it, it is it's quite brief, 90 minutes tops, very fast moving. Um, the visuals are mesmerizing. Um, the only thing I guess that is missing in terms of what we really look for in a, a sci-fi movie like this is a proper synth score. It doesn't have what you'd want. Like you look at Tron Legacy and obviously Daft Punk worked on that and it's very synthy sounding, but there isn't really anything like that in this, which is a pity. But yeah, I mean, I thing is, I only watched Tron for the first time a few years ago, so I don't come at it with any nostalgia. It's not like I was around the first time, but but I'd happily watch it again. I think it's really good fun. And even though it makes really hard work of telling a story, I think that the visuals and just the world it creates are so strange and mesmerizing that... And so forward thinking as well. Yeah, ridiculously forward thinking. And of course, combined with that, you do get... There there are times it does trigger a certain amount of nostalgia is seeing like old tech. um, And, you know, the kind of hacking that they do in this film is ridiculous. Like they obviously tapping into green screen computers and there's no like coding or anything like that. They're literally just typing in stuff like... It was like the equivalent of just typing hack the Pentagon and it doing it sort of thing. It's quite <laughs> ridiculous. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's good. I liked it a lot. Um, very strange. And yeah, I'll I w- no doubt watch Tron Legacy for next time. I will. I think I will watch Tron at some point. It's just a question of, of well, yeah, because it does, it does strike me as, because I want to watch, there's a documentary called, I think it's called High Score or something on Netflix at the moment that a lot of people have been messaging me about to watch because I don't mind video games. And and I think that would slot in really nicely because it's a niche genre, isn't it, of uh, yeah. video game films that are about fundamentally about the video games themselves and not about a specific one. Otherwise, yes. I just watch Uvi Ball's back catalogue. Yeah, and, and Jeff Bridges is really good, and he's kind of a cocky, cocky git, but, I mean, he's sort of cool and charming, so it's nice to see, because I think a lot of people would know Jeff Bridges from more recent stuff, like post-Big Lebowski and stuff, but it's weird to see him as, like, a not quite a teenager, but definitely a young buck. Hmm. Um, so that is Tron, want- and that's on Disney+. Plus. So Tron is good. I watched yes. a film called Closed Circuit, which is not good, unfortunately. I'm just going down in, in order here. Um, Closed Circuit is it's a film starring Eric Banner and Rebecca Hall. And when I put this on, it's called Closed Circuit. And on Netflix, the, the thumbnail looked quite sort of explosive. And the story is about um, a, a man who is arrested for a bombing it's all set in london is arrested for a bombing and it makes out through the description that it's a uh, eric banner is sort of his lawyer that is trying to prove he's innocent um and is working with rebecca hall and there's a, a sort of um uh, a cover-up that they're trying to unveil but the way it's filmed is it's like a really drawn out long boring televisual drama so there were points when I was watching it, and Eric's British accent is okay. It does stumble a little bit, but it is is better than most because I think mm. he's Australian. But the problem is that it's just so bland. It's just like an hour long episode of like Prime Suspect or something. Um, so I'm watching it, and and I'm thinking this doesn't need to be a film. This uh. this is like a BBC drama, uh, and the, and there's a, which is. It's not bad in and of itself, but it seems so misplaced. I'm watching it thinking I expected a film. And this is so, it's just, it's got 
it's interesting the the things it's trying to bring up that yeah. um bringing in the government and the extents jim broadbent's in it so you know he's dodgy from the second he rocks up on screen and it's interesting that you know the extent that the government and these shady corporations will go to to, to cover up their mistakes and things but mm. it does it in such a boring way um and of course you've got the inevitable bubbling love under the surface between the history of rebecca hall and eric banner's character Right. And there's a bit, there's a moment in it about halfway through where they, you can tell they kind of insert a chase sequence. Riz Ahmed is in it as well, who's a handsome man, um, mm. just to just to try and ramp up the stakes a little bit. But it's it's not enough, and it, it just ends up feeling like you know a forty five minute episode of some British drama series from the nineties just stretched out to ninety minutes. So um, the age difference between Eric Banner and Rebecca Hall that feels like it it is quite great is that because it doesn't know sure... it doesn't come across it she is she's she is she doesn't look she doesn't look too young and he's he's obviously like a handsome fit man it right, doesn't come across okay. as too ridiculous i think it's made yeah. a few years ago as well right. so it, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't jarring uh-huh. and she's quite she's quite a um she's quite a strong character in it it's not like she's, she's got quite of, a mature you know, look she, anyway yeah yeah she's she's not like swooning in his presence she's she does have a strong character in it but yeah it's it's if you are happy to sit through that kind of thing but for me it just felt mm. like it should have been an episode of a tv show that's disappointing yeah yeah i yeah i mean i like eric banner at times i think he can do i think he does creepy characters better than good guys to be honest i found trying to think it was i only really know him from the hulk film he was in and it's, another he, film he was in i'm going to talk about so yeah the last thing i want to say about closed circuit is it's interest. it's an interesting concept in how um i, I like in films where it, it, it's sort of a, a legal snags or certain situations and you get a handful of people or, or you know a, a small person up against a huge corporation in this case the british government and this so entrenched in corruption they're in a they're a situation where you think you can't we can't fight this it's just fine yeah. but it just does it in a relatively uninteresting way unfortunately oh that sounds dull but i do like i did i did like eric banner in this again this is the first or second film i've ever seen him in. i think right. enough to watch another film which we'll talk about later on called deadfall okay okay um bruce boxleitner was the guy in Tron? He plays Tron, not Bill Bruce Boxliner. You're I think he's Bixby. <laughs> <laughs> he is Bob Balaban. Um, no, he is. Um, I think he's mostly a TV actor, to be honest. But but he's very handsome, and he's like he's you know he's key age now because he's about seventy, so good. Um, right. Okay. What are we moving on to next? What happens next? Triple Frontier is next, which is on Netflix. I think okay. it might it might even be a Netflix original. Yeah, it's a movie. It's yeah, it's um, I think it's pretty high budget. Um, but anyway, so it's uh, this is a film which is ostensibly similar to Da Five Bloods, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Ah, um, yes. This is uh, this time it's um, a group of middle-aged veterans head to into Colombia to take out a drug lord and steal his money basically um because they feel they've been mistreated since since um leaving the army or whatever they they feel they've been mistreated and they have been underpaid 
and they've all got awful jobs and stuff. So they think, right, let's go and get what we're kind of owed, if you like. So anyway, so all they need to do is go into Columbia, infiltrate this mansion, steal the money, and then escape over the Andes in a chopper so they can get back to the Caribbean. It does so not go the, to plan. The Dick, McDowell's, all the Andes, really. <laughs> exactly. I thought it would be pretty easy in a helicopter, but there you go. Clampering um, over Andy McDowell on the sequel. Fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, it doesn't go to plan anyway. Um, and they need to get home by other means, um, while, all while dragging a hundred bags full of cash um, and all while being hunted by this drug lord's troops. Um, it's directed by J.C. Uh, Chandor. He made the very good All Is Lost, which I know you like as well. Yes. The Robert Redford one. Yeah. Um, and the the also pretty good, um, if slightly dense, um, Margin Call, which was a film about the 2008 crash. Um, they're good movies anyway, and quite different movies. And this is quite different again. It's 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 an old school kind of action adventure, really. Um Early on, I did think it was going to be one of those quite worthy and slightly wearying South America thrillers like Sicario, but it's, it's more fun than that um, and a bit more exciting. So more like Sicario 2 then, really. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, really good cast. Uh, various people. You've got Oscar Isaac. You've got Ben Affleck. Um, who else is in it? Some pretty good actors, anyway. Anyway, um, uh, they are a little bit interchangeable. Um, oh, Garrett Hedlund's in it as well. He's quite good. Uh, yeah. So anyway, they're a little bit interchangeable. Um, but it is essentially a group of dudes who I fancy, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> and unlike other films of this type, right? You know, getting the group to getting the band back together, sort of thing, type things, and they go and do this job. They are genuinely professional about it and they don't simply argue for the sake of it so that is a key point because often in these films it will be like just unnecessary um arguing for this for the sake of it just to create some sort of drama but i think that it's a smart enough script that they uh that the drama comes out of first of all what it is they're actually doing in the first place, which is quite a dangerous thing. And then later, the kind of extreme situation that they're in, um, obviously trying to escape and not die, for example. So, yeah, there is literally nothing new in the film at all. It's like a jigsaw of other of ideas from other movies, really. Um, there's the kind of the getting the group back together bit. You've got a, a mansion assault scene. You, you've even got this uh, this woman who they meet, who's, um, who's kind of involved in the in the plan, who kind of represents a higher moral purpose to what they're doing. So it's not just them stealing money; they also want to do it so they can um, get her out of the life, sort of thing. Um, and that's fine. It, it's so there's nothing new, but it's it's interesting and quite unpredictable when a movie draws on multiple kind of genres. So it's not just a run and gun action movie, but it also takes inspiration from later on. It takes inspiration from the likes of, um, Sorcerer, the William Friedkin film, uh, which I suppose by extension means wages of fear as well. And some of the survival movie kind of tropes, um, 
and they don't all make it back not really a spoiler but it's not too predictable who the unlucky ones are going to be if you see what i mean so yeah. Uh, they get a few pretty simplistic uh, moral decisions to make along the way, uh, and it's quite a cool, it's quite a cool kind of motif. The fact that they're dragging all this money behind them, and it's almost like each decision they have to make is always a kind of balancing act between right, okay, we're going to have to dump the money or some of the money here. So they're almost like shedding it as they go along in order to make that sacrifice in order to do other things. So it's quite a cool little visual motif of having the money dwindle as they go. Um, and there aren't too many dull campfire conversations. It just ends with Ben Affleck finally getting over the mountains with like a fiver in his pocket that blows off in Augusta when he's like, oh, well, that was a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's nicely shot, clearly edited, good, well acted. Um I think Charlie Hunnam is another of the dudes as well. Mm-hmm. A bit limited, but again, sexy. So yeah, fine. Is he, does he look a little bit like Channing Tatum? Yes. Oh God, yeah, he's in Deadfall as well. So oh, I right. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, there's good kind of geography in the action scenes because some of them are quite elaborate and they do rely on knowing where people are in relation to each other. It's a simple thing, and yet so many films fail to achieve it. Um, not sure it would really hold up to repeated viewings, uh, but it is enjoyable while it's happening. It's it's fine. It's it's a it's a decent uh, decent movie. Um, is it a sort of an, it's an action fine. film, effectively? Yes, with a certain amount of um, existential angst along the way, I suppose. Um, but nothing it doesn't drag it down too much. I mean, this it, is ver- this is very much Ben Affleck's wheelhouse at the moment, isn't it? With stuff like the, the Accountant, the thing, these kind of films mm-hmm. that have a, a little bit more to them than just a straightforward action film, and yet there's enough action in it for me to lick my lips. Yeah, so he's um, yeah. he's quite well suited to this role because he's he's got the sad Affleck look on his face all the time. But there's a reason for it because yeah, he is having a bit of a rough time. But he's got he's kind of the de facto leader of the the group, and he is quite authoritative. So yeah, it was good. I enjoyed that. that yeah, put... so that's called Triple Frontier, and it's on Netflix. Not... Netflix. I think that and Out of Sight are two that I'm clearly going to be watching this week. That you mentioned because Out nice. of Sight, I need to refresh, and and Triple Frontier. Yeah, that that's I'm I'm very much in the zone for that sort of stuff at the moment. Good, good, good. Uh, the ne- the next one I'm hoping you've seen because the way I watched it, I was um, in work <clears throat> on lunch. And Faye put it on behind me, and usually the films she watches, I, I kind of like you know, glance around, but I'm not too bothered. But this one, Loose, have you seen this? Is this what spelt like L U C E or Loose, as in Loose Women? No, <laughs> Loose, L U C E, with Tim Roth and Naomi Watts. No, I haven't seen it. I've seen it around, but oh, okay. I've not viewed it. I, Tim Roth I, and Naomi Watts, you said? Yes, uh, as okay. they they were in Michael Haneke's Funny Games as well as a couple, yeah. under a couple in this. I'll tell you what, then I'm, it's a bit of an unusual one for for the podcast, but that one I will I'll park it for the moment because I I kind of half watched it and I was hoping that you would have seen it as well to carry carry to, the fat of the conversation, fill in the, to fill, to fill in the blanks, blanks. Yeah. fill in the blanks yeah. when I was actually working. Okay, then so but uh, okay, right. I'll just say that loose. I really liked it, so okay. I won't say anything more. I'll but it's, it a good, it's a good film. Um, and we'll talk about that maybe a few weeks down the line. Where is that available so that I can... 
I think it was. It's either going to be Prime or Netflix. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Netflix. <laughs> okay. Um, 50 chance. It's good because I'll replace Loose with another film I saw at the end of this anyway that I realise I've forgotten to write down. Another film I saw, this is a two-minute, quite frankly, is called Escape Room. It's one of 3,000 mm. films that have been made in the last five years called Escape Room. <laughs> uh, this one this one is um, from 2019. And this is the one that stars Sean Young and Skeet Ulrich in supporting roles. So, so the, it's it's a film about two couples, two irritating couples who constantly bicker, who right. uh, one of them is a video game reviewer, but my heart was not with him because he's, he's not like us, but he's irritating. Um, okay. And he's he's got to review this new escape room, that you know, a physical escape room uh, that, that he goes to. But the sting in the tale is that Skeet Ulrich has had a few bad seasons um, in this escape room that he runs. So what he does, he goes to a sort of effectively, he goes to needful things. <laughs> But Christopher Plummer isn't working behind the counter. And he sees this box called the Skull Box, which is, yes, a box shaped like a skull. Yeah. And Sean Young works behind the counter and tells him that I'm not going to sell it to you because when you open that box, a demon comes out and possesses someone. Bloody and then hell. basically says, oh, what's that over there? And then leaves a load of money in the counter and runs out with it and puts it in the room as part of the puzzle. I knew there were going to be problems when, when Sean Young gets distracted and he nicks the box. She's on the phone. And she makes a direct reference to gremlins. She she says, "Oh, hello, you know, needful things or whatever it's called." Yeah. And then she says, "No, no, just don't don't give it water and don't feed it after midnight." And I thought, "Don't don't do that." Oh, don't don't no. do that. So the film it takes place with again these two couples. Um, one of them looks startlingly like Charlie Brooker, and they're in um <laughs> they're in a um a British satirist for anyone who's not sure. Is it Charlie Brooker and Connie Hark? That would be amazing. I would I would have enjoyed it more were it that case. So we've done escape rooms, right? You've done an escape room with me, I think. And so the, the, it's sort of a horror-themed one. And they go in there, and it's the usual thing, find keys, unlock codes and stuff. And the twist is there's a guy, an actual man in kind of a like a serial killer sackcloth overalls there. And he's attached to a chain in the corner of the room. And there's 55 minutes they've got to solve it. And... Every five minutes, the chain gets extended so he can eventually get to them, effectively kill them, and, and, you know, if they don't escape and end the game. Of course, what happens is someone opens the box as part of a puzzle, and the demon possesses the guy in the corner, and when they nice. leave them, he actually kills them. So it's 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 initially, you think, oh, again, right, right up my strasse, a little 80-90 minute film that's just set in one room, high concept, boom, off you go. But it is just beset by constant bickering and stupid mm. plot points. Quite often it'll just cut back because the CCTV in the room goes up. And I would say the film spends a good 15, 20 minutes just cutting back to Skeet Ulrich panicking, thinking, I hope they're all right in there because I don't want to call the police because I've got a lot of money riding on this review. And it's just uninteresting. They could have just shown that once and then actually right. got down to the nitty gritty. But, um, and constant, like really basic puzzles that they just seem to spend hours trying to work out because um, the escape room itself, if you remove like the horror element from the film, mm. the escape room itself is actually you'd probably be out of there in ten minutes <laughs> um, if, if there wasn't this guy in there trying to kill them. Um, yes. It's it's a trashy, short, high concept sort of horror thriller, but it's just it does all the things that I dislike about these. It has no relatable mm. characters. Every character is irritating. They're constantly bickering, and it just 
you just think, I just can't wait for you all to die. I want that chain to snap, and I don't want him to kill all of you, then jump out of the TV and kill me. But <laughs> it's just not... Yet. So when it finished, and it kind of set itself up for like a sequel, and I thought, no, 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 no. Are they trying to revive a kind of Saw-type experience or something? It's not that... Because... Or is it not that brutal, I suppose? It's not that brutal. It's because it's such a sort of real confined space. And also, another thing that really irritated me about this film is oh, when people get killed and they're in this tiny room, which is effectively the size of my game room, um, they, they, they're obviously just lying on the floor for dead for the whole film. So yes. just I'm assuming just so they didn't have to constantly worry about seeing the actors in the background when they're not there if they've moved, everything yeah. is kind of shot really close up from the waist yeah. up. So it's always really, it, and it doesn't come off as a sort of claustrophobic part of the film. It comes off as really cheap. Like, oh, if we just yes. film the person who's talking, then we don't have to worry about set dressing, effectively, if that person's yeah. not in the film that day. And it, it just it just becomes really unpleasant to watch. And again, yes. it's not... Close-ups need to be used sparingly. Yes. They need to be um, used sparingly and deliberately. You can't just... You can't just think to yourself, oh, it's a good way of saving money, <laughs> whatever. I'll just fix this problem by zooming in, by rotating my lens slightly. Um, so it's it's not... I mean, if you chucked it on, maybe if you had a horror night and you chucked it on with a few friends around, it could be... It's brief enough to kind of check on, spot yeah. a few of the references and have a bit of fun. But if you're sitting down as someone who wants to watch like a, a decent horror thriller, it's just it's not, it's not worth it at all. God, that sounds challenging. Although I will say that Skeet Ulrich has aged really well. He looks okay. the same. So it's kind of, and in fairness, I liked him in Scream, and it's just cool to see him in another film. It's a shame it was this one. Yeah, he was He was all right in Scream. He was quite sinister. Yeah. Um, okay, I won't watch that then. Oh, what was it called again? Know. I've already forgotten. Escape Plan. Room. Escape, Escape, room. Escape Plan. Yeah, Charles, Arnold Schwarzenegger rocks up with Sylvester Stallone. Um, it's no uh, Escape Room, but there are three or four films. Called I know, Escape I know. I, I've seen this before. Like, like w- you search for Escape Room, and so many come up, and it's like, how do I know which of these is good, or perhaps are any of them good? Well, I've watched two of the three or four now, and the answer to that is no, none of them. Although the other one, <laughs> the other one called Escape Room, which I think is from 2018 or 17 is better than this because okay. it, that is more like so like that that other escape room which i can't i can't remember you just have to search for it but the one from 2017 2018 yeah. is one where it's called escape room but it's it's a serial killer who's put them in this kind of labyrinth of rooms and that's at least more interesting at least more horror in it right okay okay and what was this on what service <sighs> One day I will remember to make a note of this. <laughs> it was I, I know this, it was on Amazon Prime. Okay. Okay. Um well from one bad horror to another, Yay. Leprechaun. Leprechaun is available on Prime. Um it was made in nineteen ninety-three, just before Jennifer Aniston started in Friends. Uh, just before a... she had a nose job. <laughs> yeah, I was looking out for the nose actually. I <sighs> I don't know. I couldn't tell. Maybe I, there yeah, was. Mm. I yeah. I don't really. I remember I, it being a thing, but I haven't seen the film in so long. I I, I get it. I kind of conflate it with a character in Friends who obviously does have a proper nose job, and I and, and I can't work out whether it's true or not. <laughs> like that she had a nose job anyway. Anyway, so this is about a mischievous evil leprechaun, played by Warwick Davis, who is looking for his pot of gold. Um, at the start, he's locked in a crate by an old couple who die. Um, 
and leaves the house empty, obviously. Empty butt for him. Um, and Jennifer Aniston and her dad move into the empty house and they accidentally unleash the leprechaun from this crate. Um, cue a bunch of lame slasher and chase sequences. Uh, it's it's a comedy horror, which isn't funny or scary. Oh. Um, so there's that. Mark Holton, who was also in Pee Wee, is in this, and he's playing another childish klutz. Um, the fact that he's one of the more sympathetic characters doesn't bode well for the rest of it, to be honest. Um, Jennifer Aniston plays her character as this kind of spoilt LA brat, um, and he, she's just flirting with the young guy fixing up the house. I, I, she can't really show her comic timing because the writing and the direction is so poor. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, when you know someone has become a good actor or in this case, a talented comic actor and yeah. you sometimes convince yourself, you look back at the early bad, early performance, which is bad. And you convince yourself that you're better than it is better than it is when actually it probably is just a bad performance. Um, and <laughs> if she hadn't gone on to be famous, then you probably wouldn't have noticed her. But yeah, I mean, you don't go back to the original Death Wish and just think, oh, that Jeff Goldblum, he had a career ahead of him. Um, <laughs> there's one bit I did laugh at, which is where the leprechaun is stopped by the police in his toy car. And the, co- <laughs> and the cop says to him, aren't you a little bit young to drive? And he, and he says, no, I'm 600 years old. So that was quite funny. But that I, it wouldn't survive Mark Como's six laugh test, this movie. Was it five laughs? I can't remember. Anyway, yeah, the only if you real ninety minutes and at yeah. one moment go, ha, that yeah. doesn't count as a funny film. Yeah, relative to all the other terrible jokes, the only real plus point to everything is Warwick Davis because he is quite amusing. He's he is a really malevolent, cheeky performance, and the makeup is pretty good. So, I do this. I, I watched I, this as a kid, and it did terrify me. And I remember him being really sort of maniacal and just. Yeah completely balmy but he's again... much better than anything else in the film um it the film makes the cardinal horror movie sin of not being clear about the limits of the monster's power um so there are certain things he can do which are clear right he can mimic voices to confound people fine but then other times he can transport across the room instantly for example um, another time he like reaches through a phone, um, like is if it's something supernatural. Um, at, at one point he tears the door of a car, but then another time he's not, he can be easily subdued in a fist fight. So it doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things which it just, it, this is not consistent with its own rules. I mean, they're all kind of legitimate monster talents in their own right, but you can't, you can't, show these things and then have him forget the skills in other situations, you know, because it, it really messes up the sense of peril about it. If you're not really c- clear on what he's capable of. So, I mean, he may say, Oh yeah, but it's only, it's only a laugh, you know, it's only a joke horror, but eh, still it is a comedy horror. It has to put in the work to have the horror element. I'm afraid. And given the complete absence of funny jokes, then it really should have leaned into the horror. Um, yeah, it's really poorly directed, ill-conceived, and just a bit boring, really. 
So that is Leprechaun. And, I mean, it's Spawn sequels, I believe. Which I believe see. one of them is Leprechaun in the Hood and Leprechaun in Space, the third and fourth. I don't know what the second mm. one was called. I'm tempted to watch them because I, look, I really like Warwick Davis. Yes. Um, uh, and I... And if you've seen the first one, which is I think is the only one I've seen, but yeah. as we all know from Critters, a film that you produced, anytime any horror film goes into space, it's bad. If yeah. it's part, if it's part of a, a series of films, right? Yeah, I'll let you do the Lord's work on that one. <laughs> uh, I must admit, I did, I did crap out of. Um, children of the corn after the third film because i just thought mm. i'm not watching another seven of these on the trot it's like four i mean a load a load of dicky kids dicking around in a cornfield 10 films mm. i mean mm. that's at least 15 hours worth of footage of watching know, right. corn on the cob literally not <laughs> one of those kids went in that hood or into space so you're not really going to watch them are you there is one scene in in the, the second film where someone presses the space bar on a keyboard but that's about as close as it gets <laughs> I watched. I watched. One of them wears a hoodie. (laughs) Um, I watched *The Devil in the Woods*, which is again another awkwardly titled film. Where it's a film in 2020 is being released called *The Devil in the Woods*, but this is a film with Stephen Moyer in from I think 2012 or 13. Um, This there's a lot of horror films this week. Um, So this film is is set. uh, It's a it's set in the modern modern day and. Stephen Moyer plays the sort of patriarch of a family with his with his own British accent, which is so plummy that I thought it was being like affected. But no, that's his accent, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so but at least, you know, he is using it. So it's Stephen Moyer and his wife and they've got two children, like a teenage daughter who I thought, are you a teenager? And when I went online, no, nope, she's 24. And and a, and a young sort of um, like sort of six year old son. And. I am pretty certain that no one in this film acts as a human person that would in the circumstances they're in. So the story is that he is someone who sort of issues technology and he just, you know, his, his daughter's always on her phone and his son's on a phone and his wife's on a phone and he's, he's really jealous. He's always expect, just suspecting her of texting men and stuff. So he says, I want to scatter my father's ashes. I want to go back to the campsite that we went to as you know, when, when I was a kid and uh, scatters ashes there. Cause I've got really fond childhood memories there. And his wife's like, yeah, that's fine. Now, what actually happens is on the drive there, there was a scene at the start where Stephen Moyer's driving and his wife, they're just driving to a campsite, right? In a car mm. with no, mu- no music on. He's just sat there driving, obviously for hours into like middle America where some massive forest. And his, and his wife is just like sort of texting on the phone. His son is sleeping in the back and his daughter is just looking out of the window, just listening to music on an iPod, right? Probably an right. iPod classic. And he <laughs> stares at his daughter just because she's using technology with such malice that he almost crashes the car. <laughs> and I thought you wouldn't be angry at your two kids for being quiet. Uh, and, yeah. you're like, and the music's like really ramping up. And I'm like, what? And she... <laughs> And presumably he bought that for her. <laughs> so I was like, why are you so angry? So he, he turns up at the campsite. He, he sees a deer that's got like his antlers missing and it's been like disemboweled on the way. CG, but you see a flick of it. So it's not too bad. Okay. And he goes to the campsite and describes you know, what he's seen to this guy. And the guy says, oh, there's a, there's a guy in a cabin around you. And he's got this barbed wire electric fence. And quite often we see animals that have get caught up in it and they have horrific injuries. Sorry, you and your family had to see that. And he's like, 
Oh, okay then. So that's explained. Right? So that's fine. That's explained. Um, he goes to the campsite and he walks in. Obviously, this is a huge like sort of national park where you can camp anywhere or whatever. And he walks into this clearing and there are a load of teenagers smoking weed, like young couples just snogging, people just boozing and stuff, smoking fags. He sets up his tent. He gets, and I thought, why not just like you're there explicitly to have some time with your family? Why would you set up here? And this sounds a bit I, like that Eden Lake film, the one with Michael Fassbender. Oh, I haven't seen this. Well, it's not that it doesn't sound that similar, but it's similar in terms of like there being some ne'er do wells at the uh, yeah the lake. Anyway, go on. So, so I and I this is I am going to go through this in quite minute detail because it was astonishing. Uh, so they set up camp there, and of course within five minutes everyone is just pissing him off because they're just smoking bags and he's got his son there. So this this kid gets up who's just really irritating and 16 the kind of person that if he had the chance in this film he would walk backwards in front of a group of, a group of people as he was telling a story that kind of person mm. and he's walking around the campfire telling this scary tale bear in mind there's like a load of people around this campfire this communal campfire and he tells this really scary tale about this like witch in the woods that had a child that was deformed and drowned it in a lake and everyone's all scared and then one of his friends dressed up comes out of the woods and just scares the shit out of Stephen moyer's six-year-old son right the only child mm. there and Stephen moyer stands up and says can you not do that he's six years old he's already scared can you just wind it in a bit and have some respect for everyone else here? And I thought, oh, good work, Steve, actually. Yeah, because that would really piss me off if that was my, you know, because his son's crying. And everyone just says, oh, stop being a dick. And then everyone just starts shouting at him, including his own family and his wife. And I thought, mm-hmm. mm, I think he was pretty sensible there. That was like the one <laughs> moment in the film that was believable. So anyway, they they decide to go further down the trail. And what would tickle me about this is they're walking down the trail and Stephen Moyer's getting more and more kind of, he's obviously, there's something wrong with him. He's like red eyed and he's like, really, he's refusing to like drink water and stuff or eat anything. And he's clearly, there's something going on with him. And he, every time his wife says, you're right, Steve, he's like, oh, just a bit peaky, just a bit peaky. So <laughs> they're walking, they're walking down the street and they keep on turning to Stephen Moyer and saying, are we lost? Do you know where we are? And he's like, oh, I know, I know where I'm going. And yet, every time there's a mid to long range shot, you can see they're clearly walking on a well worn path. So they're not lost in the woods, are they? They're on, no. a, they're on a path. So, anyway, they come to this other clearing, and I do apologize for the depth I'm going in here. <laughs> right, they come to another no, clearing, no. and they see a dog that has been tied up to like a tree in a ravine and starved to death mm. and like rotted, and a, a couple of tents that have been torn to shreds, and there's no one to be seen, right? And they set up camp. <laughs> That's perfect. It's idyllic. And 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 they just set up camp. And then, of course, a storm comes and they can't move. But then his wife says to him, I think we should, this probably isn't safe. We should move somewhere. And I thought, well, you probably should have said that late morning to mid-afternoon, really. Not yeah. now at the evening. And the and there's so many moments in this film that just beggar belief like there's a bear in mind they've been walking all day to this sort of like this mysterious campsite that has been obviously just torn apart by whatever and left there uh and no one's been there for weeks and yet he bumps into like one of the guys from the party and he says oh your your daughter texted me and said she wanted to meet up effectively for a snog and not once does he say yeah but if she sent you a text and she's lost in a massive forest how did how did you know where to come really um he lets his, his daughter says, I'm going to try and ring that guy to chat him because you told him to go away. And he lets her 
in the middle of the night, wander off into the woods on her phone mm. in pitch blackness without a torch, and then panics when she goes missing. And this happens all the time. And it just goes on and on with these just stupid, stupid decisions. And it, by the end of it, it's not a question of like, is there something in the woods? It's just a question of you just think, well, you, this is all your fault. You're in this situation, possibly getting attacked by something. Possibly Steve Moore is losing his mind. Possibly that witch story was true. Possibly there is some sort of uh, huge monster in the woods. Either way, this is all your fault, I'm afraid. You've put yourself <laughs> in this ridiculous situation. I have no sympathy for any of you. Um, there's a bit towards the end when his two children make a break for it for like the highway to try and get the police. And they're running away from this. I won't spoil it in case people do want to watch it, because I do think people should watch it just to frown at it. They're running full pelt through the woods, full pelt through it, like in an absolute panic, just trying to get to like some sort of society to say, God, please help me and my family and explain what's going on. And then it cuts and she's just kneeling in front of her brother saying, oh, so who pushed you in the water? Like, because when we found you, you were in the water. And I thought, that's not really important now. Oh, what is important is getting to safety, I'm afraid. So this it's just a ridiculous <laughs> film. And the way it wraps up and the way that there's supposed to be this sort of message at the end of the film. It, I, I was so just worn out by these awful, unrealistic choices throughout it that I had no sympathy for anyone. That said, I did enjoy it because I must have said, what? Every five or six minutes throughout that film to myself. So it passed, it passed the what test? It passed the six what test, <laughs> which is now going to feature in every horror film review we do. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is a good trashy horror because it's like when they were right, when they finished scenes and they were like packing it for the next shot. They, I could just imagine them all looking at the scripts and the actors like giving each other side eye and like frowning slightly because like mm. what this isn't how people talk or interact with each other. Um, yeah, it's baffling and a wonderfully stupid film so that's the devil in the woods starring Stephen moyer <laughs> that sounds like it's on prime it is very much yeah. they really do prime. they really do scrape the bottom of the barrel on prime i love it um okay good well let's move on to 2012 then uh 2012 which was made in 2009 and it's 2020 oh just it's just an absolute mind melt isn't it um anyway so yes this is about the mayan prophecy about the end of the world in 2012 and it really happens uh it's because of mutant neutrinos attacking the earth's core or something um anyways this sun heats up the core of the earth and triggers volcanoes and earthquakes everywhere so the scientists and government know this is going to happen or is happening um so they build ships to basically deport rich and important people um, off the planet. Um, and the rest of humanity will be left to die, basically. So John Cusack, naturally, uh, who is a limo driver, he catches wind of this through a conspiracy theorist, um, mad conspiracy theorist in the woods called Woody, uh, played by Woody Harrelson. Um, and he had he gets he takes from woody this uh map to the nearest port where one of these ships is leaving from in china obviously and then he sets about taking his family to hitch a ride and get to safety basically um all the while 
everything is kicking off. There's volcanoes, there's earthquakes, everything's getting destroyed around them. So this is after, obviously it's 2009, so this is after Independence Day, Godzilla, the day after tomorrow, and it was it was Roland Emmerich's last real crack of the whip for disaster movies. And it did pretty well, I think. Uh, I mean, he did have another pop at it with, um, what was it called, Resurgence? Independence is Day he, Resurgence. But is he, is he still alive? Because the way you said that, it sounded like he died then. No, I just think that it was, I think it came quite a long time after those kind of, uh, that disaster movie R- right. thing in the in the 90s. And, but it did okay. But I just think, I remember when Independence Day Resurgence came along, I just thought, wow, does, is there any appetite for this? I don't think so. And it clearly wasn't. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've totally forgotten about that film. Yes. I've never totally forgot about it. I yeah, think I true. forgot about it as I was watching it, to be honest. Um, by the way, everyone should watch the original teaser trailer for 2012, which is really cool. Um, it uses the Wendy Carlos music from the Shining trailer. so And it's very scary um, and very serious tr- little trailer. However, the actual film is not serious or scary. Um, and it is totally ludicrous in a kind of fairground ride kind of way. There is a scene where John Cusack literally outruns a biblical scale pyroclastic blast from a super volcano on foot and jumps into an aircraft which is driving down a runway. It's ridiculous. Is he um, wearing high tech silver shadows to give him that extra I'm boost? Pretty sure that he he's wearing, I think he's wearing a suit because he's a limo driver. Oh, yeah. of course. So probably brogues as well. Yeah. So dress shoes, no grip, outrun it. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's preposterous. Um, Everything that John Cusack does in this film succeeds out of pure luck, by the way. Like, there's, they're driving through L.A. As, as this huge earthquake's happening. And, like, if a building, like, falls in their way, he'll just drive through it. And it's like anyone else would just get instantly killed. But now he drives through it and comes out the other side fine. Um, Is that in a fun way or a ridiculous way? Or a uh, mixture of both? Bit, a bit, bit of a mixture of both. Once you kind of get on board with the fact that it's not obeying any laws, then it's okay. It's fine. Um, it, I, as I say, in a very fairground ride kind of way. There's nothing visceral about the way that humans interact with the destruction, you know? Um, so anytime there are actual humans involved, it doesn't look good. I, I think when you see these enormous extreme long shots of like tidal waves flowing over mountains that does have a certain impressive grandeur and it, and i guess by then cg had come far enough that it can look basically realistic it's definitely the grandest of his like disaster movies um yeah uh, and it's got it the scale gives it that problematic issue of the fact that we're kind of relieved to see kusak and his family surviving and yet we're totally indifferent to the millions of tiny CGI people we see consumed by this disruption. Um, and it, the film has this a, a really serious case of small world syndrome. And this is where uh, so characters, completely disparate characters over the other side of the world or whatever, will, will find themselves bumping into each other emits the maelstrom of this global catastrophe they'll bump into each other or or there's a bit where the family crash land in the himalayas in the himalayas like one of the most vast mountain ranges <laughs> in the middle of the night crash land in the himalayas and literally two minutes later they're just found by a load of passing helicopters it that sort of thing really undermines that sense of scale because yeah. it's like there's no real 
no sense of like a grandness in those kind of scenes. It's, I think it it does succeed just about um, because I think Roland Emmerich is he's become like a bit of an expert at nailing the tone in these sorts of films. If you think about it this way, right? So you've got in Independence Day, you've got Jeff Goldblum. In Day After Tomorrow, you've got Jake Gyllenhaal. And in this, you've got John Cusack. And what they all have in common is a very kind of understated acting style um, yeah. when they need to turn on sort of thing. And I Is that, is that a nice juxtaposition against everything that's happening then? Exactly, yes. it's it, the, the way that it juxtaposes that against the global destruction is kind of dramatically interesting, even if John Cusack does get a bit swamped in it all. Um, and I think also why it works is because Roland Emmerich has a good eye for uh, like visual composition. I'm sure there are videos online about this, but I know it's it, it, virtually every time that he portrays this massive con- uh, destruction, he will he will frame it in a in a very effective way. He often uses, um, particularly uses kind of triangular shapes to, in the frame, and it and it works really well when you notice it. The film is way too long, by the way. It's nearly three hours, and it doesn't need to be. Because there are some locations like Yellowstone. I mean, they they go to Yellowstone and then go somewhere else, and then they end up coming back. And it's like, don't need to do this. Don't need the same characters to go back there again. But anyway, yes, it's too long. Um, but if you're coming for mass destruction and sort of insanely over the top special effects, deployed with some level of skill, uh, then you do get that. And and it's a bit more fun with a bit more variety than the day after tomorrow. Um, and it's obviously much less dated than Independence Day, which can look a little bit shoddy now. So, but yeah, it's very much in that wheelhouse, and that's fine. This sounds like the, this sounds like the kind of film that my mother would love because she is someone who lo- loves the experience of cinema and is is loves scope and yeah. huge things happening. Oh yes, a, I remember. A favourite thing about the entire Expendables trilogy was Terry Crews firing a chain gun because she said, oh my god, my seat was shaking, it was amazing. He was screaming, it was loud, amazing. So, good old mum. She also, she also told me, well I remember I had a conversation with her a few days ago, hello mum if you listen to this. She was saying I was talking to her about Don the Dragon Wilson in Night Hunter, right? right. And how I said I actually couldn't watch some of it because it was, it was giving me a headache and making me feel sick because the camera shake. Yeah. And she said <clears throat> and I quote Oh, I know what you mean. I hate it in films when the camera doesn't stay still and it's swooping around. I, I've always hated that. And oh. yet, she's a massive fan of Michael Bay films. Ooh, she is a walking swooper. conundrum, my mother. Walking conundrum. Yeah, I mean, he, that is his thing. Like, unnecessary, unnecessary, illogical camera moves are his bag. So, yeah, I remember the sound she made when I was watching Bad Boys with her years ago when I was a teenager. That scene where um, Will Smith stands up in the first bad boys that famous scene on the camera yeah. swooping around mm. and she was watching it and she actually the noise she made when like will smith stands up in his tight vest and the camera swooping was <laughs> it was like a creepy santa claus um opening his own presents which were all dirty magazines of his own wife so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah now you put it child- that way i know exactly what it's, it's like it's, it's nice to bring these childhood memories <laughs> into the podcast yeah so yeah, 2012, it's okay. No, I, the disaster films aren't really my bag because mm. I don't. I'm, I'm a, peak, obviously. <laughs> obviously, yeah. Um, I and that's just about Joe Dante's parting. Um, <laughs> so 
yeah, and the, the next film I've got to talk about is Hide and Seek. Not that one. Not the one with Robert De Niro and Dakota Fanning. This is Hide and Seek, which was also called Cord, starring Daryl Hannah um, and Jennifer Tilly. And oh, Vincent Gallo as well, is, is, uh, isn't it? Okay. So, so this... This is yeah, this is like a I, I think I want to say mid two thousands um, film where Daryl Hannah is married to Bruce Greenwood as we all are at some mm-hmm. point and they're having in my mind trouble, I am they're having trouble um, uh, working uh, out know, working out how much <laughs> work Daryl Hannah's had on her face yeah <laughs> and working out uh, how Bruce Greenwood is always, is always cast as a slightly dodgy husband in a lot of mid-budget films typecast, yeah anyway go on um, so yeah so so the film is that Daryl Hannah and Bruce Greenwood have trouble uh, conceiving a child so they go through IVF and stuff and uh, Daryl Hannah it's it's not happening they go to this clinic that Vincent Gallo works at and it's it's not happening she's getting morning sickness and they're having these tests and they like, no they're just kind of psychosomatic. I'm afraid that, you know, you're not pregnant. And then she gets into a sort of, uh, she gets assaulted and kidnapped from her own home and taken to Vincent Gallo's house. And his wife is Jennifer Tilly. And they are, they, she is actually pregnant. He's forged all the results and they're going to keep her there for nine months until she gives birth. And then they're going to kill her and just basically take the baby away. And they fake her death. So Bruce Greenwood, Bruce Greenwood is, is good in it. He, he is a good actor. He, he's, convinced his wife is still alive even though the evidence is massively against it and um he this features some astonishing bad policing as well um and so he kind of in the background is is trying to find out if she's still alive there's any glint of hope and whereas the bulk of the film is obviously the kind of sort of schlocky thriller stuff of jennifer tilly vincent gallo making daryl hannah like force feeding her and stuff while she's pregnant and uh so they can keep her alive long enough to steal the baby. It's a weird film because Je- it, I, I enjoyed it, but for very odd reasons. Um, I really like, we'll talk about Bruce Greenwood first, right? His wife goes missing and they find a car with a, obviously a, a corpse in it burned to a crisp. And they say, that's your wife. It had all the jewelry on in your car. There's no sign of forced entry. I'm afraid your wife's dead. And he's just got this feeling and he's really, the way he deals with it is, is actually quite set. He's like really bereft. And every now and again, it'll cut back to him, like sort of trying to move on slightly with his life in the background of the bulk of the film. And he's got one of his co-workers who's a complete screamer, who's like trying to seduce him. And he, and there are some nice scenes where he's just, is it's, it's hard to explain, but in his eyes, he's kind of, he knows he should probably move on, but he's so in love with, with his wife and, and can't let go of the fact she's gone that it's actually handled really well. How he just kind of rebuffs her advances. It's mm. actually quite, quite a nicely, nicely dealt with. Um, <clears throat> The rest of the film is bonkers. <laughs> it is Jennifer Tilly is is um, I've only ever seen her in I think Bound in nineteen ninety six mm. and as the as the voice of the Bride of Chucky. I don't think I've seen her in anything else. No. Of course, she's got that kind of cracked Barbie doll yes. voice, and she's she's a really unique screen presence. And in this film, Vincent Gallo is is all kind of creepy, big NHS glasses, um, t- t- trying to sort of tell tell everyone it's all right but but like it's really kind of sinister when he's alone with daryl hannah in this basement they keep her in and jennifer tilly has got some sort of i don't know what it is they don't really go into detail but she's very childlike like very excitable and childlike and reactive to things and she's talking in this ridiculous voice and she's just acting like tying dolls around her stomach as if she's pregnant but doing it in a way that's that's creepy but sort of 
it's weird how she plays such a, a zany character, but mm. manages to ground it because she she clearly threw herself into the role and said, right, I'm bonkers, I'm going full tilt. And Good. she's really unpredictable in, and, and quite frightening. And there's a scene where Daryl Hannah refuses to eat. And of course, Vincent Gallo is a is a doctor, so he gets this kind of really weird, like turn of the century kind of force feeding pump that they used to Jesus. force feed ducks on a farm to make foie gras. And he he is like he's the kind of reticent to use it because he he wants her to be healthy. But then, and so does Jennifer Tilly. But she's so like, oh, I want to use the pump. I want to use the pump. And it's really creepy how she's like mm. laughing maniacally and force feeding her this weird gloop. And it's like this is really unpleasant. It sticks to its guns. It's a, it's a silly film, but I will give mm. it that it sticks to its guns until the end. The only problem I had with it is that there's one point where Daryl Hannah escapes. Uh, this isn't a spoiler, by the way. She escapes, and she walks for miles. And the way it's edited, it's like she's just trudged because it's in winter. Cause she's obviously pregnant for so long. It's in like a jacket, just walking through this like knee deep snow, and she's just and she's totally like you know just fatigued and hungry. And she finds a phone box and calls Bruce Greenwood. And he turns up after the fact kind of thing. And he's at this this phone box and he looks up and the farmhouse is about a hundred yards away. Mm. And I thought, what? Mm. What? So that was a bit, right. That's, that's handy. Mm. That's a handy plot point, isn't it? Yes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it was fun. It was fun and ridiculous. I wouldn't recommend watching if you're pregnant though. I'm not going to watch inside instead. Yeah. But my wait, wait. <laughs> I might wait a couple of weeks for that one then. Yeah. <laughs> So what's it called and where is it available? Uh, it's called Hide and Seek, not that one, with Robert De Niro and Dakota Fanning. Uh, this was clearly, it's on Prime. You know by the description it's on Prime. Um, and I think it's also called Cord in some territories, so yeah. as in umbilical cord, which makes more sense, really. All right, well, okay. That kind of leads nicely onto my next one, which it's also Ray has Ray. multiple titles. Tomboy is also known as The Assignment. Um, this one's on Netflix. I think I know where they were going with that title. Yeah. Um, this is So Michelle Rodriguez plays someone called Frank Kitchen, who's a hitman. And he is a man at the start, albeit an unconvincing one, um, who is put through forced gender reassignment. And understandably, she is perturbed when she wakes up as a woman. Uh, Sigourney Weaver plays the doctor who does the work and she does it out of revenge for someone that um, Frank or now called Frankie killed. Um, Yeah, so it's kind of a revenge thing like that. And of course, um, Michelle Rodriguez's character, Frank, is, is working her way towards getting to we uh, Sigourney Weaver, basically. So, okay. It's directed by Walter Hill. It's quite a recent one. I think it was 2011 or something. So it's a recent Walter Hill film. Um, and, and to be honest, though, it could be anyone. There's no, no real evidence of Walter's previous craft. Sigourney Weaver's performance is probably the main issue in this, but there are many issues. But... Scorner Weaver, she looks like she's being fed the lines through an earpiece. Like it's such a vacant, weird performance. Mm-hmm. And in its pure exposition, endless exposition and explaining her own <clears> motives. <throat> and I'd like to point out that Shakespeare quotes do not a good script make. Uh, and yet she keeps doing it. Very tedious. Um, 
and and just really, there's way too much screen time devoted <laughs> to uh, her character, Scorny Weaver's character. I mean, we we end up knowing everything about her history and education, but it's to no end. I don't know what the purpose of it is. We're not given a compelling reason to care to that extent um, about her, and yet Michelle Rodriguez's character is a complete mystery, really. Um, <laughs> I'll get on to the stuff about what Michelle Rodriguez looks like in this film, but anyway, <laughs> it is. I'll say that it is bafflingly edited. Like, there's a scene where someone, played by Tony Shalhoub, obviously, um, complains. He complains to Sigourney Weaver about being lectured. No, he complains to someone else, right, that Sigourney Weaver's character has lectured him about Edgar Allan Poe. So he's talking to his colleague or whatever, complaining about this. And and so he goes it goes on about that for a while. And then it and then it cuts like to obviously the scene they're describing. And you've got Weaver, uh, Sigourney Weaver is now acting out the scene that he's just described it's like you don't need to show us and tell us you just have the scene of her talking about Edgar Allan Poe you don't need to have him introduce it you know it's just pointless it's weird um and and then you got it keeps saying things like eight months before and stuff which only it's, kind of muddles the chronology it's it's not there the pad at the running time it's not a short film is it I, I it's not a long film so it may well be there to do for that purpose um yes yeah, so and, and it's got these it's got these bad writing kind of um tropes in it like for example um michelle rodriguez is keeping like a, a vlog of her experiences um so i mean this is bear in mind that she used to she is meant to be this ultra like masculine unemotional hitman and she is just making this vlog to explain just for our benefit basically in lieu of good writing is she's just explaining her motivations what she's doing now it means that we get this unrelenting voiceover um yeah and people keep being like how shocked at how different she looks frank looks uh, and it's like oh my god you've had plastic surgery one of them says and it's like no she clearly hasn't had plastic surgery it, it, at most she's had a shave that's it because she literally <laughs> looks identical minus the beard like when you first see because at the start right you first see frank as a man and i thought i assumed that this was someone who'd gone through the gender reassignment i thought it was going to be male uh, female to male because right. she 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 doesn't look like a man like they even have like a quite a gratuitous like nude scene where she's got this strangely shaped chest and really thin waist. It looks like Prince or something. And, <laughs> and, and uh, like, and a penis and stuff. And like all this really hairy chest, like Sean Connery and the old Bond films or whatever, really <laughs> ridiculous stuck on beard. And yet this really kind of luxuriant, like female hair. It's so odd. And yeah, it's bizarre. <laughs> But then, no, that's meant to be her. That's meant to be Frank's normal look. It's only that then he gets changed into a woman later on. Anyway, yeah. So it's it's very silly. It's really the Sigourney Weaver subplot is the thing which really knocks the wind out of the movie every time because it's so much time spent on her when it could really have just been following Michelle Rodriguez around, kicking ass and and um shooting people like you know getting to the her way to the top and perhaps negotiating her relationship with her girlfriend 
you know, you could have had just that as a film. You didn't really need Scorny Weaver chiming in every time. So um, it's got music by Giorgio Moroder. Oh. Which, eh, it's sometimes really nice. It's not very synthy. It's much more modern electronic. And it's sometimes really, really uh, gorgeous sounding. But other times it's got that annoying thing that they did a lot in the 2000s um, where it was like it would be really glitchy and like almost like breakbeat type thing and over action scenes. And it's just a bit mm. cringeworthy now. It goes, I mean, the, it's a film. It, it should really, it sounds like it should offend a lot of people, but it almost goes out of its way not to offend anyone. Um, like there's Sigourney even gives this kind of disclaimer about her lack of enmity towards transgender people. And, and there's a scene between Frank and her doctor which is played completely straight, but which is fine. But at the same time, it's it's set against this comic book tone it has elsewhere. So he even has like comic book frames, just like in the Warriors, um, like between scenes, they'll have like a comic book frame. Like it's like this kind of mad off the wall exploitation film. And yet it's weirdly sensitive about the subject of uh, transsexuality. So it's not, it's too careful and kind of tasteful to be an exploitation movie. I kind of feel like it needed to be more offensive to be interesting, but it's not. It's just just a pretty bad action movie with some really stodgy scenes in between. This is Mostly really weird. Because, Weaver. because I'm pretty sure that, I don't know if it was before or after this, but Walter Hill directed Bullet in the Head with um, Sylvester Stallone, and that was offensive in its kind of racial politics. <laughs> So it, you know, he can be offensive if he wants. If he pulls Shit, his bloody finger out, to turn it on. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, I don't, I don't think I'm going to watch that film. Uh, it's not worth it. I mean, if it was amusingly offensive, then maybe it would. Be <laughs> um, but yeah, if anyone does want to watch it, it's called Tomboy, or possibly called The Assignment. It's on Netflix anyway. Um, the next film I've got is Under Suspicion with Gene Hackman. Morgan Freeman and yes, Thomas Jane and Monica Bellucci. Is this one you're familiar with? It's a two thousand. It is not, but I can imagine why. What drew you towards it? And his name rhymes with Bomas Kane. Yes, that's right. It is Monica Bellucci. <laughs> no, it's it was uh, it was. Well, in all fairness, again, I keep on saying this, but I I do like kind of uh, mystery thriller things, and this was I saw Gene Hackman and. Um, Morgan Freeman I thought oh, is this going to be like a really wordy legal drama or something but and then the running time was 90 minutes and I thought oh, okay um, and the, so the story is this is one that I remember when I worked in the video store that I watched then and as I was watching it now I thought oh, actually I have seen this but I had no idea what the ending was going to be in it and I thought oh this is actually pretty cool I like it when this happens and like every time I watch detox I just forget Get everything possibly because it's extremely forgettable who's to say so the story is that gene hackman is an extremely wealthy um tax attorney and he lives in um oh i've actually forgotten where his space it's it's somewhere in south america that they live in um in this like really beautiful sort of paradise and uh, there's a huge uh celebration like a mardi gras celebration going on and morgan freeman is the local um sort of captain uh captain of the, the local police force mm. and <clears throat> they've obviously got a relationship that's a, a, a f kind of friendly relationship they know a lot about each other's personal lives well they think they do and 
Morgan Freeman says there's been a spate of murders. Like two girls have been found raped and strangled, like 12 or 13 year old girls. Um, we just need you to come in for 10 minutes before you go to give a speech at this um, charity event across the way. Mm. Um, just to answer some questions in in the statement you gave, because Gene Hackman, we find, discovered one of the bodies. And the film, it, it's, it sort of unveils from there. You know, the, it's it's a film very much about Morgan Freeman saying, right, can you just run through what happened between this time and this time? Gene Hackman will explain it. And then Morgan Freeman will catch him out in a small aspect of it. And then the whole thing kind of snowballs. Mm-hmm. They are good actors. Gene Hackman is a good actor. And, and the film the fact that it's effectively apart from a few flashbacks, which I'll go into in a minute are uh, is set in, in this, this single large room in a police station in Morgan Freeman's office is really cool. The fact mm. that they, they, this, they're obviously like the fact that it's 90 minutes really helps the fact that it's so taut and it's always yeah. moving forward. It's not like an ambling film. Thomas Jane is really funny in this film because he plays like, whereas Morgan Freeman is very um, <clears throat> kind of calm and collected and is doing his job properly. Good policing in a film on this podcast. It's always nice to see. Uh, mm. Trying to catch him out and, and get that sort of hard definitive proof they need if he is guilty. Thomas Jane is just really, it just completely believes he's guilty from the second he sets foot in the room and is just determined to just, just catch him out, like just constantly saying stuff to trip him up. And Morgan Freeman spends the whole film just saying, shut up, shut up. Um, there's a really funny sequence where Morgan Freeman has to leave for 10 minutes and um, Thomas Jane has just lost his temper with Gene Atman and almost blown the whole thing. And Morgan Freeman says, right, I've got to go away for 10 minutes to speak to the chief. Sit with Gene Atman, sit in the room and, uh, and don't just don't speak to him. Just sit there, don't engage. Just make sure he doesn't leave the room. And Thomas Jane's like, yeah, you're right, Captain. I'm being a silly Billy. So he goes back in and sits in his chair. And Gene Hackman's just smoking one of his many fags. And Thomas Jane just starts giggling to himself, just going. <laughs> and Gene Hackman's like, what, what's so funny? And he just says, I'm just thinking about when you strangled and murdered those girls, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that is not what Morgan Freeman asked you to do. Um so that's quite funny. Monica Bellucci's really good in it as sort of a sizzling, like sort of a moody siren. You're not sure where her loyalties lie. And it's just a really good, taut thriller uh, that's quite verbose, which is nice because a lot of it comes through. A lot of it comes through in how much Gene Ackman sweats, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> the. The, the the only thing that I had that just really dated it from like the, the, you know late nineties early two thousands and I thought mm. oh this is just it just seems really cheap is every time Gene Hackman is ex- and I can see where they did it maybe maybe they thought that in the editing it would come across as a bit boring that it's all the action is in this room but I would have preferred it if it was because then it would make things even more murky because you're yeah. just going off people's speech what they what they're choosing to say right but every time Gene Hackman or Morgan Freeman talk about something it'll cut back to this, the scene they're talking about and they're both there talking about it. Oh, really? As if, as okay. if they, and it's awful. It's an awful, awful thing to do um, because they're like walking around this girl on the floor and saying, oh, this is how you found her. Yeah, she was lying just like this. And you're like, no, don't do that. This makes Ooh. it seem like some, like the bloody virtual reality thing. Oh, so God. that was, it doesn't happen too often, but enough to make me wish that it wasn't in the film. Um, but it's good. It's nice to see. I mean, Gene Hackman retired not long after this from acting, so it's nice to see his mm. kind of. I guess his last because after this he was in like Heartbreakers and the Royal Tenenbaums and stuff. Yeah. It's nice to see him in a, in a quite a dark, wordy, very actor-driven thriller. Yeah, he kept the quality until the end. To be fair, 
Yeah, even even in Heartbreakers, he was amazing with us with Sigourney Weaver again and Jennifer Love Hewitt. Mm. Um, so it's worth a watch under suspicion. Yeah, like I said, ninety minutes. If you, if you like a thriller, it's, it's it's good. It's a really good film to sit through. Is this one on Prime? Ooh. Yes, it is. Okay, I may well check this out then. Um, I will talk about Sightseers now. This is uh, Ben Wheatley, so- isn't it? It is Ben Wheatley. Um, I watched this on Blu-ray. I don't think it's on any streaming services. Um, naturally, I've got the German Blu-ray because it's got a, a nice crochet effect on the um, Blu-ray you know, cover. Why, is, why do you constantly buy German Blu-rays? They, well, sometimes you have to. I'm looking at you in the mouth of badness. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, um, there was... I'll talk first about... There's a 70s film by Mike Lee called Nuts in May, right, um, which followed this fusspot English couple with this kind of creepy parent-child dynamic uh, as they go on their camping holiday uh, in England. And they, they it's basically they clash with other holiday makers and reprimand their behaviour. But they've basically got no kind of social skills or empathy of their own. And it was very funny and well-observed. And <clears throat> Sightseers basically takes that same idea um, and that style um, but adds an ultra-violent element because this couple end up murdering the people who annoy them. Um, they're played by Steve Oram and Alice Lowe, um, who are both comedians, I think. And mm. he basically, uh, they're, they're a couple, he basically whisks her away from her horribly overbearing mother, um, who's obviously developed this childlike dependency on her, in her. And they go on this caravan holiday to places like the National Tramway Museum and the Derwent <laughs> Pencil Museum and places like that. He, he's really doing sweeping her away off her feet. Yeah. Um, so they after they have this argument with this guy who's littering, um, but think nothing of it. But then they accidentally uh, reverse the car and kill him, and and it's quite a violent death. But it is an accident. But he gets a real taste for this, and he feels quite good about it. The fact that he's killed this person. Um, and he basically then, from then on, he he uses his kind of middle class liberal ideology as a rationale for killing anyone who doesn't agree with him, his like political views and stuff. Um, and she's very submissive, being the kind of child in this parent child relationship. And she gradually comes on board as well. It's about as black a comedy as you'll ever see, because there are no jokes. The humour is just in its observance of everyday British crapness and the constant drizzle and the underlying resentments hidden behind the kind of small talk um, in their encounters with people. And that behind in itself, the small talk, by the way, a great old Samuel song. Thanks for bringing that up. Brilliant. Yeah. Slipped it in there. I, I'm not sure that that would be enough to sustain a whole film, but what keeps it interesting is the, the shifting dynamic uh, power dynamic between the two, um, two lead actors, because she's so subordinated um, and just goes along with whatever he does. And yet it gradually dawns on her that he is actually just a bit of a macho tyrant in all his relationships, including theirs. And it's a question of whether she wants to allow him to continue kind of wielding that power and just go along with him. Um, as you say, Ben Wheatley directed it. This was in 2012. It was just after Kill List, literally the following year, I think. It's no less depressing than Kill List, but it is funnier. Uh, and... I just find it's constant overcast skies and boring campsites just hilarious anyway. Um, 
not sure what people from other countries think of it, but as a British person, it's, it is funny just looking at the kind of places they go. Um, <laughs> it never, but it never really kind of mocks the places themselves, which is quite, which is good. It doesn't like say, oh, have, uh, look at this funny pencil museum. They're kind of just background for it. it the, the butt of the joke is always them and their relationship. And the dialogue's really good, really sharp, very real. Um, and the the juxtaposition with the extreme violence is very jarring, but that is funny in itself. Um, and it, it's really just a unique film. It's a, it's a unique alternative horror film that everyone should see um, who's interested in horror, really. So, very um, good. Yeah, I'll write that down on my list. Uh, two, a couple of things. One is that um, uh, Steve Orm has rocked up in a couple of films I've seen recent, not oh. recently, in the last year or two. With uh, there was, I actually reviewed it on this podcast. I can't remember what it was about about a woman who believes she's she can bring her like dead son back, and he plays sort of um uh, someone who he has the power to do it through these like weird occult rituals, and he's a really dark character in that. Jesus. And also, he rocks up in In Fabric. Um, oh, right. okay. in, in some in some of the really funny scenes, uh, along with I didn't watch it, but the dude from the Mighty Boosh that's not Noel Coward or whatever his name is, Coward, <laughs> Noel Fielding. Um, yeah, yeah uh, I'm not sure who the other one was, but yeah, was. he's there's some scenes in Fabric that are really funny with Steve Orm and, and the, right. the dude from the Mighty Boosh in it. And the other thing is that Mark Kermode has just done um, an interview with Ben Wheatley, and it's really funny. He I, he's a really down to earth guy, and he doesn't mind swearing. He does not mind swearing. <laughs> Um, so he's, yeah, I think he's got a really interesting um, filmography, and this is so different in tone to Kill List or something, but just as good, I think. So, this leads me relatively nicely onto a film called Deadfall, which stars Olivia Wilde and Eric Banner, and Chris Christopherson and Sissy Spacek, and the guy you, Ben Hannum. What did you say his name was? Charlie Hannum. Charlie Hannum. Yeah. So, uh, Deadfall is a, uh, once again, Rupert. I'm completely out of my wheelhouse here. It's a 2012 dark thriller. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> so, okay. Okay. Um, so it starts off with um, someone who basically is killed in the initial car crash. It's nothing to do with the film. Uh, it's a heist that's gone sort of well, right, I suppose. You've got Olivia Wilde, who's got bags of money, and Eric Banner putting on an American accent, which is fine. It's better than his British one. Um, and they're a brother and sister with a really dysfunctional relationship who have just done this huge heist and they're trying to get to Canada. So there's somewhere right up north and it's freezing. It is Mork and Mindy and it is banging down with snow. And they sort of career off the road, the driver crashes, and they realize that they're after Eric Banner. Um, but So they, they come up with this idea to just split up and just reconvene in Canada. Right. Um, so they kind of split the money between them and go their separate ways. Eric Banner is wearing a full suit with a jacket. Olivia Wilde is wearing a cocktail dress with sequins on it. So she <laughs> is cold. Um, and so so what happens is uh, it cuts then to Charlie Hunnam, who is um, a, a, a boxer who's been in prison for having a fight fixed for a few years. And he comes out and he just wants to kind of get his life back on track. He calls his mother, Sissy Spacer, to say he's going to come and visit. And the first thing he does, unfortunately, is go to his old boxing promoter, punch him once in the face, and the guy just trips, slams the back of his head on a filing cabinet, and is dead before he hits the floor. Bloody so inst- instantly he's like, oh, that's not going to look good. That is not going to look good that I came from prison here and killed someone. 
They are going to think I did that on purpose. So he, it, before he even has a chance to kind of react to the situation, he, he happens across Olivia Wilde while he's driving home. And it looks like she's seducing him. But I th- what actually ha- ends up happening is she, through talking to him and actually having like a real connection with someone who isn't just using it for sex, she realizes how abusive Eric Banner is being towards her in the relationship and how creepy their relationship is. Mm. So while that half of the film is happening and she's kind of finding her own personality and coming into herself and realizing, actually, I really do like this person. The other side of the film is Eric Banner basically murdering his way up North. Um, (laughs) And there are some really nice sequences in it. He happens across a, a family with a really abusive stepfather in a cabin, which is leads to some nice moments. And it all culminates in them meeting up at this house, um, at Charlie Hunnam's parents' house, Chris Christopherson, Sissy Spacek, where Eric mm. Banner is and, and Olivia, um, I was going to say Newton John then, Olivia Wilde. And they've both got had such different journeys, how they sort of coalesce and how they react to finally being together again. Right. And it's, it's, it's decent. It's good. Um, there's a buzzing scene where someone in the film at one point gets his, gets a nice shove through his hand and mm. to get the knife out, he doesn't pull the knife out. He yanks his hand back towards himself. So it oh. really tears through the rest of his hand. And I thought, and nothing is made of it, but I thought that would hurt. That would hurt. Um, <laughs> and I sent him a text and said, that must have hurt. Um, yeah, <laughs> he didn't back text back though because he couldn't, no. he couldn't use his hand yeah and he had no context for anything I was saying <laughs> yeah. um, eight years ago um, so yeah it's it's again it's a it's a decent 90 minute uh, that it, it, it's I think sometimes when it goes into the relationship and some of the things that happen because they are biological brother and sister Eric Banner and Olivia Wilde mm. It leads leads the film, sort of lends the film uh, like a quite sinister edge that you think, did that need to be there? Mm. Is that could it would it have been a bit more accessible? Would it have been any worse for wear without that in it? But it's in there and it doesn't detract too much from it. It's just a, yeah. as I usually say, it's just a decent thriller. Been quite lucky with these little thrillers, haven't you? These little ninety minutes. Well, the thing is, he almost it there was a moment after I watched Closed Circuit where Eric Banner was on the verge of becoming a Jonathan Rhys Myers. And I thought, oh, but then I watched this and it, it kind of gave me renewed because he's, okay. he's quite, uh, yeah, he's quite a, considering the stuff he's doing this, he's a quite interesting character because he's kind of, um, yeah, he's just quite uh, dynamic. Okay. Um, so that was called Deadfall. And that's from, I think 2012. And that was on Netflix. Right. The Prestige is on Prime. Uh, this is one that Christopher Nolan made in 2006, straight after Batman Begins. It's the story of two magicians in the 19th century, played by Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. Uh, when something goes horribly wrong during a performance and Hugh Jackman's wife dies in the, in the trick. Um, and they... Obviously, separate. it's only three card Monty as well, isn't it? It's quite surprising how these things <laughs> they, spiral uh, out of control. Yeah, it really did escalate. Um, they become bitter rivals and they try and jeopardize each other's tricks and stuff because they, they separate and have different careers, but they're trying to jeopardize each other. And meanwhile, they're trying to create their masterpiece of a trick, trying to one up each other. Um, when one of them achieves this trick, um, the other becomes obsessed with understanding it and replicating it. I won't mention what the trick is because it kind of may be a spoiler in itself. But anyway, 
it is a beautifully shot film and it's it's got really nice production design like it's it feels very lived in without being fetishized it's just like it's a believable place that you know they inhabit here so that's cool david bowie obviously rocks up as nikola tesla um with a slightly dodgy accent although i don't know what accent tesla would have had i think he was serbian so it might be it may be accurate anyway scarlett johansson's in there as well uh as one of her girlfriends and she does this kind of decent British accent. Um, there are a few mundane things that bother me about the film. Um, there, there aren't very many tricks. You don't really see many tricks happen, which bothers me a little bit. Because uh, I like how it shows the mechanics of certain tricks, but I kind of wanted to see more of a, a stage performance in some scenes. Um, I, I think this has something to do with Christopher Nolan's style, though, because it, it's it's relentlessly dark, literally, and he is as always, utterly committed to the the narrative puzzle itself. There's no real room for colour or texture outside the boundaries of that, um, where I think it could have done with it here. Christian Bale has got this annoying oi governor type accent, which is a bit, over, a bit much. I found that quite aggravating. Um, but more importantly, I... I'd say that the final kind of takeaway from the film, the final message, if you like, um, is a bit of a, a slippery and debatable one. Um, it's really saying, without giving anything away, that no one wants to see, uh, no one wants to understand the trick itself. They just want to be amazed by it. And mm. it's a bit esoteric. And I think it that is at the core of why so many critics kind of took issue with the ending in the end, because Roger Ebert called it a cheat, the ending essentially because it introduces something which exists outside of the rules laid down up to that point. I mean, it's not quite uh, I found a shotgun moment, but it does come close. Um, I now I don't have a problem with a supernatural element per se, but I'm not sure that the final message, uh, which I mentioned, I'm not sure that that is profound or succinct enough to kind of justify the hokiness of the the kind of twist ending, because it's presented like an, this enormous like emotional catharsis at the end. But I'm, I'm not sure really Nolan at that point had that emotional element to him. To be honest, he was still building puzzles more than anything. Uh, it wasn't really until Interstellar that we saw, we peeked into Nolan's heart, if you like. But anyway, any any film, right, which features a main character, a main character, bear in mind, who's always around, but they never speak, and they're clearly wearing fake facial hair. <coughs> it will be found out long before the end. And, and if your emotional conclusion, your big emotional conclusion, rests on that mystery character, then... As an audience, you, you've, you're prepared for it so far in advance that the ending is inevitably going to fall flat, and it does, to be honest. Mm. But up to that point, it is an, an intelligent and well-made, slightly laborious period drama, and the and it does have the occasional unconvincing domestic scene um, uh, in it, um, especially involving Christian Bale. I, so I wouldn't say it's essential Christopher Nolan, but it, it's decent enough. It's okay. Um, uh, that, that whole thing you said then about um, 
like people just want to be amazed by a trick and, and not understand it. I think it's kind of fundamentally flawed because we both have a mutual friend who was a close-up magician, and like when he would show me tricks, like you know, mainly card tricks, close-up magic. It's like, how'd you do that? But then when they show you, when the magician reveals it to you, how they done it's like a further level of amazement because then you actually realize the intricacy that goes into it and this level of skill and time so it's almost like that and then then you they do it again when you know what they're doing and then you kind of think oh well that is now that i know what you're doing and i still can't quite see it that's that's really clever that's a real talent right yeah so well it's like looking at the world in a in a you look at the world and the the beauty of nature say and Yes, it's impressive in its own right, but it only becomes more impressive when you understand why it is like it is, you know, when you understand the scientific underpinning of it, it doesn't become less interesting. Um, so, yeah, I don't really buy it either, to be honest. Yeah. Mm. Um, so that's the so, prestige and that's on Prime. And that's film of the week. Um, <laughs> so an, a decent film. Um, I've, I've got two left. How are you going? I've just got the one. Nice. Oh, this is perfect then. Um, I've, I'm doing this slightly out of order because I, while we were doing this podcast, I wrote down one um, that I've forgotten. So I'll do the one I was going to end on now, which is The Witch in the Window. Oh, yeah. um, this is on Shudder. Yes. Yes. A seven day free trial. Stop going on about it. So I'm trying to squeeze in as many as I can before I, they invariably just get wiped from my memory in my hard drive. Um, so The Witch in the Window, it stars someone who looks suspiciously like a cross between Billy Crystal mm. and someone else that escapes me now that faced it. Oh, he looks like so-and-so, but he looked, there was a touch of Billy Crystal in him. To Dead the point Dancing? there's a scene that's... If only, if only it was Dead Dancing. I guess who the other person is. But let's just say Billy Crystal. So it stars someone who looks like Billy Crystal, who was a father in, um, in a family. Uh, he's got a young son who has done something unspoken. He, on his computer... He has done or seen something unspoken that has like shaken the family, and the the mother is is uh, it's sort of hinted at. It's not directly said, but she's a very difficult woman that mm. the father loves. The father just wants this family unit, um, and but his wife is kind of making it difficult, and the son's obviously kind of stuck between them. So the film is mainly about the the, the father takes the son away for a few weeks because he's he says he's flipping a house, so. It's kind of usual thing out in, you know, away from New York, uh, uh, upstate New York or whatever. And it's a kind of a rural farmhouse, which is something that the mother has always wanted. And he's hoping it's a way to kind of bring the family together, get away from the stress of the city and the politics and the social problems and just you know, have this kind of close knit family life. And the film is basically them doing it up and they find out from someone working on the house about the previous owner. Um, and what happened to that person who lived there and obviously it starts to get a little bit supernatural um the film i saw faye chose this film she said i watched the witch in the window um mm. i glanced online because i don't like to read into films too much um and it got pretty good reviews like user reviews like you know this is actually a really interesting film i put it on and it was 70 minutes long and i thought oh god come on i've seen granny i know these short films go but it's actually turns out to be one of the best horror films I've seen this year. <laughs> because wow. um, yeah, it was it was really I wouldn't say nice, but again, this is hard without giving anything away. But there's a real the fa- the father and son. First off, it's, there are some really creepy scenes in it, and it mm. it does that thing that I know you like and I know terrifies Faye, 
is when they'll just be having a normal like familial conversation sort of thing and then you'll just notice in the background unspoken of it's just a shape or a person just standing uh-huh. relatively in plain sight really saying so like oh that is creepy that is creepy um there's a couple of jump scares but it's not really about that weirdly the film is about this um the the emotional core is how much the the father character is is, is willing to push forward to try and keep his family together yeah and he he's really good in it it's a really kind of surprisingly understated performance in in these kind of low budget horror films that usually just as i usually say at the end of it it just explodes up, up instead of getting explored and this is definitely a case where it just gets explored and it has a denouement where it ends it ends and i was like oh that's obviously the natural ending and then there's another like five minutes and i thought when it kind of the screen faded back into this other scene i thought what oh don't do this you were doing really well but and, and the last few minutes completely make it and i thought that was really good <laughs> i'm really glad those five minutes wow. exist um so the witch in the window is yeah it's not it's not like a really horrific gory film it's more of a family drama than anything else but i felt like it really paid off well and it's 75 minutes of your time you know so if you're a fan of horrors I wouldn't even say slow burning because it, it's it's too brief to be slow yeah, burning. Yeah. It just gets everything done. So yeah, it's, it's this. Really, this is happening. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really understated film. Yeah, the witch in the window. Yes, good, and that's on Shutter. I think I've already used my free trial, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, well, my password is. <laughs> Your password is the last samurai. See what I did there? <laughs> that was bloody clever. That was. Uh, which is okay. So the last samurai is on prime and it is set in 1870 something. Tom Cruise plays, uh, a guy who he, an ex soldier who's boozing hard to overcome the PTSD he experienced after massacring native Americans, basically. Um, the army generals have made a deal with the new Japanese emperor. Um, and Nathan's, uh, the, Nathan, the Tom Cruise's character, his job is to train the Japanese army to suppress uh, a samurai rebellion in the country. Um, needless to say, it does not go well. Uh, and he is captured by the samurai and he stays in their village. Um, because he's a skilled warrior in this warrior culture, they treat him uh, with a fair amount of kindness and actually train him in the way of the samurai. Um, and he's released from captivity eventually, returns to the U.S. Army, and then finds out they're planning to annihilate the samurai for good um, using enormous machine guns. Uh, but the question is, where does his honor lie, you know, at that point? So it, at its core, it's kind of got the classic kind of samurai themes and I suppose later anime type, type themes of the machine of industry sort of encroaching on ancient rural culture can i interrupt for one second mm. because i'm just thinking right i've mm. never seen this film at yes. all i know of it yep but you just described the setup and i'm thinking about the title of the film mm. and is that some sort of giveaway <laughs> maybe <laughs> <laughs> oh dear it is okay. it's it's easy to transplant the kind of noble noble savage themes that we've seen in progressive westerns throughout the years into this kind of samurai 
culture, uh, it does lean pretty hard into the white savior trope. Um, and this is this is the idea that another culture can only be saved by the intervention of a a more skillful, braver, or more resourceful white person, basically. Uh, although I have my problems with the criticism of this particular trope anyway, because, because like Dances with Wolves, say, which is basically is, Dances with Wolves or something like Amistad, say, or anything like that, they are they, these are mainstream films, right, designed to give their audience, who are invariably not from the community in question, the... the the white cult, the white savior um, trope, it, it li- gives you a way into that culture, into a culture basically that audiences might otherwise know nothing about. So, and I think that the kind of fish out of water thing can help illuminate a lot of the cultural differences and incompatibilities, but also, crucially, the compatibilities between cultures. What's universal? So it it helps the themes become universal and. Um, and it's I think not just the so, sort of washing negative then. No, it's not it just is, saying yeah. they're useless, they can't deal with themselves, um, so therefore they need a white man to come and save them. It's not as simple as that. And I think that there is a net good it to it. So anyway, but regardless, I'm sure there'll be lots of woke people who'd be um, opposed to this. But anyway, so possibly more problematic and maybe a little bit more disingenuous is the portrayal of samurais themselves because it is so picture postcard and idealized i literally want to live in the village like it's so picturesque and peaceful um it never really considers the idea that samurai might have had a, a slightly less noble agenda than altruism and the rural life uh that actually they may have had a bit of a privileged status in themselves so didn't want to lose that who knows and the the kind of brutal reality of women is you see it, it it is photographed in the film but you it's never really explored and the one japanese woman with a speaking role isn't actually given any kind of voice to protest or anything but you know there you go cruise is good uh oh well, we're cruise fans here aren't we he's in sick yes. hands here he i'd say that his normal charisma is a, a Slightly locked behind him, either be either being quite stolid or a miserable drunk. But you know, he's still he's still very, you know, he does command attention. And there's pretty strong support from Timothy Spall, who's got a quite a cool role in it. Uh, Ken Watanabe, who's pretty much in everything, which involves a Japanese person, uh, and of course Tony Goldwyn, naturally. Hey, also. here he is. Yeah. He plays a pantomime villain, basically. Um, I've said it before. This is Edward Zick, Zwick, sorry, who made stuff like Glory and Blood Diamond, Legends of Fall stuff. He is really good at making a decent chunk of money go a long way. And it, and everything does look really gorgeous in this. And the battle scenes are very impressive, especially the final fight, which I, I liked. It's kind of... It had a lot of detailed shifting formations and stuff, like as in battle formations, and it reminded me of uh, Stanley Kubrick's Centurion World. on the Amiga? Well, I was going to say Spartacus, but yes, Centurion or would also be true. Um, <sighs> I think it's a good film, even if it's just a set of pretty familiar tropes just in a new location, really. The script is pretty smart, and Hans Zimmer's music is typically stirring uh so yeah it's pretty solid really 
how long is this film sorry i'd say over two hours okay maybe between two and two and a half but it's not bloated no it's not no yeah and it's never boring this seems to be a film of Tom Cruise's that doesn't really get spoken about much from I'm trying to th- I've never really had a conversation about it before. No, I so, don't know. I mean, I think it did pretty pretty well. Uh I mean, it wasn't a flop or anything. It did pretty decent and Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it is so familiar like, you know, it's I think it got quite dismissed by a lot of critics just being another Dance of the Wolves or something like that, but I don't know. It, was, it, was it like it, early 2000, like 2001 or something? 2003, I think Three, it was. Okay. But yeah, and I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the white saviour thing that people have a problem <clears throat> with, but I don't have a problem with it. And I think it's a pretty it's a pretty picturesque device. Yeah. Yes, and but I think it's a and I think it's a pretty beautiful film, and it and it got me interested in Japanese culture certainly. So um, that I think this yeah net good really yeah. So, so how long was it? So you watched the film, and then how quickly did you buy Ghost of Tsushima on PS4? <laughs> I did actually think of that. I thought oh, I really want to buy Ghost of Tsushima now. Yeah. <laughs> um. But then I that thought, am I really going to enjoy that? Probably not. I'll write down The Last Samurai. It, I will watch it because I'm a Tom Cruise fan. But, it's very watchable. Uh, it's very palatable. Okay. The, so the last film to end the podcast, then before we choose the films of the week, um, is Ty Sheridan in The Night Clerk, or Clerk. Night Clerk? Night Clerk. Yeah. Um, have you heard about this? Because I know you're, you like Ty Sheridan. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of him, but I have not seen this. This is a film, I think it's only a couple of years ago. So, Tyre Sheridan, I first came across him in Mud with Matthew McConaughey, a man whom I also fancy. And I really liked, although I mix him up in my mind with Barry Keoghan sometimes, I really yeah, he does have that, yeah, I know what you mean. I, I really like Heavy Tyre Sheridan's screen print. Yeah, because yeah. I, I, I know he was in that, and then the next thing I heard about him, he was playing like an early version of Cyclops in one of the X-Men films. Didn't care about that. No. So, when Ready I saw one, this, probably weren't interested in that, yeah. Nope, didn't see that. Um, not for any reason, just like, yeah. I think it's the hype. I just get put off by yeah. hype, so I just think, oh, yeah. The budget's more than I've got in my pocket. I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> yeah. You need to wait at least 15 years until the hype's died down. Yeah, and to, to then come on this podcast and say, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> um, <laughs> decade and a half wasted. Um, it was my father called his second marriage. Um, so the night clock is, is a film at Tyre Sheridan. I, I got wind of this film just by scrolling through Netflix and I saw him in it and it was an intriguing sort of thumbnail, just him sitting on a desk. And it just, it basically says that, you know, a, a troubled young man sort of thing, uh, witnesses a murder and gets embroiled into it. Well, I put, I thought, well, it sounds to me like it could be a pretty disposable thriller. So Sounds it like on. it might be a 90 minute dark thriller. <laughs> Click. Um, so I, I popped it on and I, I really liked this film. Um, I'm not sure if I like the film or I just really, really like Ty Sheridan it because he plays a character who is, is a hotel clerk, but he's got, he's got Asperger's. Um, right. He's an Aspie as he calls himself. And I, it's not, Again, I always feel a bit uncomfortable when I talk about these films because I've things like this I have no real um, experience of. It's not something I've ever 
you know, I've never knowingly met someone with Asperger's. I don't know what the symptoms are, although they are kind of explained in the film. I don't know if they're explained in the film, in the kind of film logic. I don't know how accurate it is. But I'm mm. always a bit weary in that I think, is this just really disrespectful to people who have like, who have this mm. um, this problem? So, but Ty Sheridan's performance is magnetic in this film. He does not stay still for a second. And he's so socially awkward that your heart completely bleeds for him. Mm. And he's got this job where he works in this hotel and just um, is just there in the night shift effectively all the time. So nothing really happens. And his way of interacting with people is to, he's got loads of cameras set up because he's so social awkward when he's with people, he's got all these cameras set up and he just kind of mimics what they do. So like after his shift, right. he'll go home. His mum is played by Helen Hunt. I'll chat about her in a bit. Um, but he, he goes into his sort of basement apartment that his mum has set up in the lower floor of a house. And he's got, he watches all the footage on the, the cameras, not for any real creepy reason, but just because he finds that when he repeats what they say and when he's by himself and there's no sort of social situation, he can kind of relax and just, just it, there's no tension for him at that time right. so you kind of think, you know, filming people bad but the reason he's doing it are pretty benign you know so okay. he witnesses he witnesses uh, a murder and the police find uh, find like his one of his cameras and he gets embroiled in it uh, the the investigating officer is played by john leguathamo and he is brash. He is brash and does not deal with someone with learning difficulties with any sense of grace, kind of. <laughs> so, of course, he just goes wailing into him saying, oh, he did it, did you? And, and of course, Ty Sheridan's like really struggling to kind of explain himself and his, his reasons and stuff. And the waters are muddied further by uh, Anna de Armas, I think her name is, or Armes, uh, oh, yeah. who was the girls in Knock Knock. She's pretty. I'm just going to say it. Spoiler alert. Nice um, out as well. Who, yeah, excellent. Who... Um, yeah, of course. How did I not click on that? Um, she plays kind of a, a broken character who stays in the hotel and who kind of befriends Ty Sheridan's character. And um, the, they have like a really nice, um, a really nice connection. But of course, she's. A, a, I spent a lot of film thinking she was a prostitute. Quite frankly, she's kind of cloaked in mystery and is involved with with a married man. And and of course, he can't really understand any of this. Yeah. Um, the film is pretty straightforward in what happens but uh, it's ty sheridan's performance was i couldn't i couldn't stop watching him yeah and um there are some really nice sequences um that are quite delicate sequences with things kind of spiral out of control and of course he can't fully grasp what's happening and he can't really explain himself but they, they all kind of handle quite deftly and with an emotional core that you it's it never just gets really sentimental and it never gets really ridiculous um and it was interesting watching this so close to the fanatic, which yeah. is sort of a similar thing, but taking a completely different approach. Um, yeah, and I, I think if anyone is a fan of Ty Sheridan, they should just watch it just for his performance. Maybe people who are much more anyone in the world, basically, who has more experience with Asperger's than me might think, nah, that's a Hollywood portrayal. But just as a character in the film, yeah, I, I was I was completely on board with him. And it made yeah. me think, yeah. I need to watch more of your films, Mr. Sheridan. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of his and my wife knows a lot about autism. So, yeah, I think we'll be watching this one. What's I'd be really... The Night Clerk. The Night Clerk. I would love it if you did, because it would be, in, it'd be awesome to see some someone else's view with experience of it, you know, how, how they see it. Um, yeah, I don't want to say any more without spoiling it. The other thing I will say really quickly is Helen Hunt in this film, 
Mm. I haven't seen Helen Hunt in a film in a long time. Mm. And I and I thought she's fifty seven, but and I hope she's okay because she looks old. Look, we're in this film, and I don't think she was made up, but she looks like she's aged about fifteen twenty years since I last mm. saw her in like uh, What Women Want or whatever. Um, it, she she just looked slightly unwell, so I, I don't know. It was the, well, the last film I saw her was probably about ten years ago, and that was what was it called? I think it was called The Sessions or something like that, where she played a sex therapist. And that involved quite a lot of, like, quite frank nudity. Um, And, yeah, she didn't seem to have aged greatly there. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she's... It it could have been just really good subtle makeup, but it was distracting because I was was watching the film thinking, I hope she's okay, because she (laughs) seems to have... It was genuine concern. But, yeah, yeah, um, but, yeah, it's it's just Ty Sheridan's film all the way, and, and I really liked it. And I can imagine it's a film that will really slip under some radars it seems really low budget but i really liked it well good and when was it made i've recently? got a feeling like 2018 yeah very recently. so yeah so he would have done like ready player one which is a massive spielberg movie and it's good that he's doing smaller interesting roles like this that's cool yeah yeah so film of the week then it is a tough one to me i mean I'm looking at these now, and I'm you've got stuff like The Devil in the Woods and Hide and Seek. And Distribution was good fun. Deadfall was okay. Um, I really, really liked The Night Clark, purely for his and Anna de Armas' performances. But The Witch in the Window was a huge surprise. Like I yes. watched it. I, I was comp- I really clicked with that. So for me, it's going to be The Witch in the Window, which is on Shudder. <laughs> if, you, if you're not Rupert, you get your seven-day free trial, boom. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or just pay for the service. I suppose that's the other alternative. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, I'll definitely be watching that. Um, yeah. yeah, and the Night Clock as well. So for me, it's it can only be Cyber Tracker. No, not really. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I, I forgot we even talked about that. Um, well, I've watched a good, a few good ones today. You know, it was nice watching Outside again. Uh, Triple Frontier was a nice one. Tron was i think everyone has to see that because it's just so incredible given its context is so ahead of its time great but i think sightseers is the is the one because that's the one most likely to slip under radars uh so uh for anyone who's got any interest in kind of slightly weird uh sort of very black comedy horror then that is the one to catch if you can nice Mm. And other films with Leonardo DiCaprio in. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's well. It's been a slightly longer episode than usual, Just even me. though we 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 would people said, or maybe you know, chop them up into smaller chunks. Boom, two and a half hours. Yeah, we reacted by just went, <laughs> ah, we'll go for the full hog. Hundred and eighty <laughs> minutes. Thank you very much. <laughs> just um, yeah, I got. I was surprised by how many films I've seen this week. To be honest, I don't know how, but um. But yeah, uh, so yeah, so the films of the week, The Witch in the Window and um, Sightseers, although I do mm. heartily recommend The Night Clark. Good. Well, hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully this isn't my last one for a while. But yeah, keep bearing in mind that I may have a baby in the next week, then I suppose it's possible that we won't have one next Monday. So but I'll still be watching films. I'll still be racking up my list. If it's just, if not, it'll just be me for ninety minutes shouting into the void about Don the Dragon Wilson films. 
<laughs> I watched Cybertruck too. And not never understanding that you're not there, Rupert. Have you not seen this? Are you on mute? <laughs> yeah, it's just the sounds of you adjusting your audio settings. <laughs> Ah, Barbarian Sound Studio. <laughs> um, so, Brilliant. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, awesome. And uh, I'll speak to you soon, hopefully. Okay. Farewell. I love Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye then.